of Concepts and Methods on Postisms and Other Essays, K. Morali, also known as Ajith. Part 1 Communism is the riddle of history solved, and it knows itself to be the solution. Karl Marx Preface the essays in this collection reflect my efforts to grapple with some ideological issues posed by developments in the field of theory, as well as contemporary political practice. Well before being, quote, dispatched, unquote, for my enforced sabbatical, I had attempted something in this direction through articles written for some journals. Some of the ideas presented there have been further worked on here, hopefully amplifying them. A constant theme running through all of these essays is that of deepening the critique of mechanical thinking. In this process, I have also tried to engage with views critical of Marxism. The guidance has been the thinking that, both in its emergence and advances, Marxism is drawn from its critical engagement with diverse streams of thought and subsequent synthesis. Its future depends very much on retaining and employing this quality in close relation to the practice of changing the world. It remains for the reader to judge how far I have succeeded. The lead essay directly takes up one such stream of thought, something I have chosen to characterize as postisms. This, of course, includes the numerous variants and offshoots of postmodernist thought. Beyond that, there is also the thinking that is influenced by it, though formally outside its theoretical paradigm. The justification for this broad categorization is a common strand connecting them, their stubborn refusal to grasp anything in its totality. All of these essays were written while in prison, except the last three. I thought it appropriate to include them since they would help the readers in understanding the theoretical background. An interview done by K.P. Sethunov, a noted journalist of Kuralum, covering a wide range of topics, has been added as an appendix. The essays written in prison had the benefit of the careful reading done by comrades Varvara Rao and Vernon Gonzalez. As part of preparing the final manuscript, I have made some stylistic changes and added explanatory notes and references. Most of the essays have been further improved, drawing on the insightful suggestions made by J. Mufuad Paul. The scholarly introduction, contributed by Siraj Giri, helps place them in a broader context. I thank both of them. Thanks are also due to all comrades and friends who have assisted in preparing the manuscripts for the printers and the foreign languages press, which has contributed to editorial and publishing skills. A South Asian edition is being brought out by Canal Publishing Center. On Postisms, Concepts, and Methods The following critique on some of the concepts and methods seen in postcolonial theory and postmodernism is mostly informed by samples of their applications as seen in articles published in the Economic and Political Weekly. The arguments made in these articles have serious implications for the theory and practice of radical change. They need to be challenged. Moreover, they are guided by some prominent and common methodological approaches of quote postist unquote thinking. These can and must be critiqued as such, separate from specific concepts. Let me start off with a quotation. Quote, Non-European societies have their own internal dynamics and cannot be reduced to the European idea of history. This new reading of Marxism also states that there is no unilinear teleological history imitating an evolutionist model, that is, history moving from the alleged low to high societies. This new model of history thus shows that tribal societies are not a lower type of society and that a direct revolution is possible for them without going through capitalism, unquote. What we see here is an often repeated criticism made against Marxist historiography. It has its variations, 
Some charge everyone, including Marx. Others excuse him. However, facts present a more complex picture. The rejection of extrapolated West European history as a universal model goes back all the way to Marx and Lenin. The former's views on this matter, seen in as letters to Russian communists, have been noticed and commented upon. The latter's equally explicit separation from reductionist universal modeling, as seen in his What the Friends of the People Are, has however received scant attention. The version of historical materialism that later came to be widely upheld departed from these views. What may be described as the five-stage theory of historical development became dominant. Marxist historiography was often reduced to a matter of identifying similarities in a given society, shared with this or that historical stage, pre-given by this scheme and characterizing it as a form of that stage. There were exceptions. José Carlos María Tigüe, the founder of the Communist Party of Peru, and Didi Kansambi, the historian in India, are two brilliant examples. Rather than confirming the arguments of the quote, new reading unquote, as seen in the quote given earlier, their work demolishes it. Every social formation certainly has its own internal dynamics and features, yet there is also something that can be abstracted from all these particularities and deemed as universal. Marxism understands them as aspects of the laws of history. This is challenged by some who declare such views to be a distortion of Marxism. They attribute them to angles. According to them, Marx has never used the term laws of history. Whatever may be the case, it is still an undeniable fact that he did advance a conceptual frame, emphasizing certain factors as common for all social formations and historical transformation. The famous passage from Preface to a Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy summarized his understanding of the dynamics of historical transformation. Earlier, the German ideology had already identified universal factors such as productive forces in relation to production forming the structure of every social formation. The role played by the working out of their dialectics and historical transformation was also noted. Maria Tigüe and Kosambi could shed light on the unique features of the societies they lived in precisely because they took guidance from such universals. What is purported to be a new reading is a more postist version of Marxism. Similar to other postist thinking, it too avoids material reality and argues that there is no question of historical movement from lower to higher. Yes, this is indeed a crucial arena of contest with capitalism's reading of history, which places itself at the pinnacle of social progress. But not just capitalism. Every oppressive order has pictured itself, its culture, economic system, and socio-political relations as superior to all others. This has been even more explicit in their treatment of tribal societies. Caste feudal characterization of ethnic communities such as Kadar, Jungli, etc., forest people, and the use of these terms as demeaning epithets is an immediate experience for us. The allocation of higher or lower positions flowing from such thinking is no doubt reprehensible. Yet it would be wrong to dismiss this positioning as a mere creation of some teleological vision or of social hubris. The judgmental valuation seen here, no matter how objectionable, has a material basis. It goes beyond the narrow class or caste interests of a ruling order. When this is denied, the rejection of teleological reading ends up negating the very fact of historical or social development. In terms of division of labor, technology, and productivity, tribal societies were vastly surpassed by the exploitative societies that subsequently emerged. That is undeniable fact. It had its implications in the development of the ideological realm, which in turn influenced the productive capabilities of those societies. Will it make any difference if, instead of lower and higher, we use the term simple slash complex or advanced slash backward? 
Well, if we remain materialist, then we will inevitably have to accept that the complex and advanced is higher than the simple and backward, at the minimum in its material relations. That does not in the least mean that the higher can be valorized as ideal, nor does it exclude a critical examination of its values and relations with reference to those of the lower. This is precisely the implicit suggestion of the Marxist concept of primitive communism. Though primitive, it sustained communal relations and values, since there was no exploitative class. From the standpoint of the oppressed, that is something to be cherished and learned from. It was incomparably higher when compared to the base selfishness seen in exploitative societies. Marx's intervention in the debate on the prospects of the Russian village communities was informed by this understanding. These communities still retained much of communal living and production. The question was whether, given those features, they could directly pass on to communism. Marx opined that they could, without passing through a capitalist interregnum. Can this be cited in favor of the objection to our distinguishing between higher and lower forms of societies? No, something very important would be missed in that reading. Marx's endorsement of a direct passage to communism was predicated on the growing presence of a proletariat in Russia. The leadership of this class, produced by capitalism, was seen as a necessary condition. Its implication was the ideological guidance of this class. This could function as a channel to convey all the positive gains of capitalist modernity. In that process, the feudal ambience these communities were steeped in would be upset and steadily diminished. One must not forget that a good amount of backwardness, such as religious obscurantism and patriarchy, were as much integral constituents of Russian village communities as were their communal features. Obviously, Marx would not have intended that they too were to be carried along with their direct revolution to communism. This direct passage would also necessarily be an internal revolution. What would eventually be part of the new communist society would be a synthesizing of the village community's communal values and relations. Such synthesis would only be possible from the standpoint of the new society. Whichever way one wished to describe it, it would in fact have been higher, advanced, and superior to those village communities. Marx could grasp the new possibilities inherent in the Russian situation without getting trapped in schemata precisely because he was consistently materialist in his approach. He would thus identify the potential Russian village communities in the context of the emergence of world capitalism and the growth of the proletariat in Russia. To make a consistent rupture from the, quote, universal modeling of history, unquote, that comes from, quote, European ideas of history, unquote, we too must stick to materialism. We must start by recognizing the material grounding of these concepts in the actual historical trajectory of West Europe in the growth of capitalism and its world transformational impact. Two interrelated yet distinct intellectual streams have gone into the conceiving of a universal modeling of history. Drawing on the Enlightenment and giving it shape, West European intellectuals conceptualized their own history as the inevitable path to be followed by all countries. The capitalism they were part of was lauded as the ideal society. This was the primary defining stream. The other one was the internalization of this thinking by third world intellectuals. West European universalizing theory was not the first to emerge in the world. The third world too had its fair share in this. What distinguished the former was its reach encompassing the whole world. The spread of capitalism in that region and the colonization of almost all the remaining world made this possible. The advanced capabilities of the capitalism that took shape in West Europe, compared to all other existing social systems, were an enabling factor. This was by no means unilinear or predetermined. There was nothing guaranteeing that what started with the Renaissance would necessarily arrive at the Industrial Revolution. A number of incidental events went into its eventual emergence. 
but once it got consolidated, its superiority was beyond question. Control over most of the world's territory and resources enabled and fueled capitalism's growth. Like in all other spheres, colonialism had grave ramifications for the intellectual one, too. Intellectual traditions in the colonies suffered a mortal blow. Their organic development through contests and synthesis between different schools of thought, all within a broad frame of reference specific to each wider region, was abruptly blocked. Even when one or the other school was valorized by Western intellectuals, as for example Advaita in South Asia, it was treated as something long dead. Its continuing presence in philosophical and theological debates was ignored. It was denied contemporaneity. The whole frame of reference shaping and indicating topics and issues of intellectual activity in that region was displaced by that of the colonizers by the West European thought frame. Even the most recent Western intellectual easily summons a Plato or Aristotle as living, relevant reference. The Western ancients still retain this contemporaneity precisely because of an unbroken chain of thought process. In actual history, Greek philosophy re-arrived in Europe through Arab philosophical schools. But more than this detour, what mattered was the continuity in thought. For the South Asians, Charvaka, Kannada, Kapila, or Najarjuna, even the relatively recent Ramanuja, or Madhva, are far removed from their contemporary intellectual concerns. At most, they enter into debate about those stalwarts. Their concepts, methods, and arguments do not become part of our present debates as guidance or reference. The frames of thought popularized by these schools are, for us, purely objects of study. Postcolonial theory would have us believe that the intellectual malaise of simply picking the latest theory off the shelf and applying it in our context, notwithstanding its provincial European origin, is because, quote, we so believe that theory is by definition universal, unquote. No, it is because we have an internalized the European thought frame and made it ours, not voluntarily, but by violent colonial imposition. This is the main reason for finding it, quote, next to impossible to approach pre-colonial thinkers from our modern locations, even though we find it perfectly legitimate to read archaic Plato and Aristotle, unquote. Stubbornly sticking to its exclusion of materiality, post-colonial theory argues that the factors underlying the continuity seen in Western philosophical thought resides within the tradition itself. It thus presents this continuity as an outcome of a, quote, European tradition, unquote, seen from Kant onward that conceived theory to be, quote, immune to historicization, unquote. This resistance to historicization made possible the setting up of a seamless contemporaneity between European thinkers from Plato to Marx to Deleuze. The superficiality of this argument can be readily seen if put in a broader context. Claims about, quote, standing above historicization, unquote, were by no means unique to Western thought. Advaita, for example, asserts its eternalness and traces its roots to the Vedas. So why did this South Asian school fail, like others from this region, in remaining contemporary? Postcolonial theory's narrow frame emerging from its West fixation can never raise or address such questions. Moreover, it forces this theory to ignore counter-trends that come up in the West itself, such as the theoretical work of Marx and Engels who insisted on historicization. Moreover, it would be hard put to explain why they could still continue to draw on Western philosophical thought from the ancients onward in their intellectual work despite this insistence. Postcolonialism's avoidance of material factors is further compounded by its quote postist unquote take on quote theory unquote. It is stated, quote, theory is often understood as thought in abstraction, unquote. Later, it does acknowledge that abstraction is seen in South Asian thought as well. It even goes on to speak of the quote generalization, unquote, present in any theory. The sense sought to be conveyed is that its opposition is to the notion of abstraction as normative, as universality of thought, 
or as the highest mode of thinking. All of these are seen as characteristic to Western thought. Does this distinction make any difference? An abstraction drawn from concrete relations or processes may be deemed normative. But that cannot be a reason to deny the abstraction necessary for any theorization or the universality contained in abstraction. This is not a matter of someone's, quote, understanding, unquote. They are intrinsic to the thought process. Remove abstraction, you will end up removing theory itself. Besides, universality is not engendered by claims of its trans-historical relevance. That quality is something attributed to it. The source and location of such attribution lies outside universality. By its very nature, any universality is relative. That is so because it is conditioned by the particularities it expresses. It resides in those particularities with all of their specificities. Therefore, the attribute of being transhistorical can be given to a universality only by forcibly separating it from the concrete relations it was abstracted from. Idealism and metaphysics tear apart the dialectical relation of the universal and the particular. They then go on to impose a rigid hierarchy with the universal as supreme. They do not grasp the idea about a material object as a thought product arrived at through abstraction from the material reality. Instead, that object is declared to be a manifestation of the idea or is being defined, determined by the idea. Enlightenment thought's normative models were grounded in such inversions. Identifying the idealist metaphysical thinking that has given rise to the manufacture of universal models from which the real is supposedly derived helps in rescuing its critique from the bounds of an East-West dichotomy. These aberrations were not and are not purely Western or solely products of the Enlightenment. Idealism of the East was no less harmful. Advaita's conception of the sensuous universe as a projection of Nagruna Brahma filtered through the veil of Maya, Samkhya's denial of emergent qualities and reduction of every quality to something potentially pre-contained, in Prakriti, Brahmanism's insistence that all diversities are merely manifestations of a single unity, these are some examples from South Asia. Coming to the present, why does our quote, dependent, derivative, unquote, relationship to Western theory continue in the quote, post-colonial, unquote? Is it merely an intellectual hangover from our colonial past? To answer these questions, we need to get rid of the very paradigm of a, quote, post-coloniality, unquote. No doubt one sees variety among post-colonial thinkers on this matter. Some among them even accept the need to factor in the continuing role of imperialism. Yet despite such gestures, this school of thought is basically predicated on the assumption that the erstwhile colonies are now independent. Even if continuing ties of dependence are acknowledged, they are considered secondary. The post-colonial paradigm is thus, in essence, the denial of the neo-colonial, i.e., the continuing domination and exploitation of ex-colonies by imperialism through indirect means. Under neo-colonialism, the erstwhile colonies have gained formal independence. In fact, neo-colonialism thrives on the semblance of independence. Exploitative, dominating relations, which were explicit under colonialism, are now filtered, inverted through the false consciousness of independence. For the neocolonial mind, its practice of uncritically taking up the latest quote Western unquote intellectual product and interpreting its own surroundings through the new tools or concepts it offers is never a matter of tailing the foreign. It is seen as an organic outgrowth of one's own intellectual tradition, and that is the fact. The transition from colonial to neocolonial conditions did not call for any rupture in thought tradition. Rather, the theories and methods of the erstwhile colonizers continue to be appreciated as most valid and relevant. They are now applied in the firm belief that one is contributing to the development of a thinking that is now considered to be born of and serving an independent country. 
the case of, quote, development, unquote, is illustrative. Economic landscapes shaped by colonialism are left basically untouched, even while new entry points for the penetration of imperialist finance capital are opened up. What was damned as examples of imperialist domination are now welcomed as necessary for the development and the building of a strong nation. Postcolonial theory willingly accepts the semblance of independence offered by neocolonialism. Not surprisingly, it dismisses the Marxist understanding on the continuing role of capital, now finance capital, in shaping the world as a, quote, buying into this totalizing theoretical category, i.e. universal history, and this narrative of the relentlessly universalizing drive of capital, unquote. Why is it that, unlike other societies in the past, the West has been able to posit its particular history as the driver of global history? How did this particular universal history succeed in imposing itself as hegemonic theory over the whole world? Denied material reasoning by postism, we are forced to be satisfied with some mysterious attribute of the capitalist West's universal history, something summoned up through the power of its thought tradition. Caught up in this dead end, postcolonial theory thus blocks the deepening of its own critique of capitalism's universalizing claims. The inner tendency of capital to appropriate more and more surplus value drives it to continuously seek out new venues and territories and make them amenable to its specific form of surplus extraction. This underlies capitalism's tendency to refashion the world and its image. The universalizing tendency of capitalism, its ability to impose its own, particular history as universal, is grounded in this material dynamics. Global networks of trade have existed since antiquity. Colonial empires, too, were not unique to capitalism, yet the transformative role of this social system stands unmatched in its breadth and depth. Marxism took note of this distinction. The limits imposed on capitalism's world transformative role by the very same thirst for surplus were not, however, sufficiently worked out. That can be seen in Marx's writings. For example, in his own On British Rule in India, the expectation was a more or less rapid capitalist transformation of the colonies. As we know, that was not really what actually transpired. British colonialism implanted capitalist relations and brought about transformations in caste feudalism, but it did not eliminate it. Capitalism's transition to imperialism, its larger investments in the building up of several industries did not bring about any basic change in this pattern. Colonialism continued to be a restraint on the development of local capitalism. Caste feudalism continued in its transformed forms. Caste continued to have a prominent place, both in the old and, quote, modern, unquote, sectors of the economy. Taking all of this into consideration, the Third International fleshed out, so to say, Marxism's skeletal assumptions on the prospects for growth of capitalism in the colonies. It pointed out how colonialism restricts the growth of local capitalism, how it makes feudalism its social base, and how it gives rise to severe disarticulation in the economies of the colonies. Building on this, in the light of the experience of making revolution in an oppressed country, Mao Zedong added clarity and precision. He qualified the capitalism engendered by imperialism in China as bureaucrat capitalism. Attention was drawn to the direct role of the state in its emergence and existence. The intertwining of bureaucrat capitalism with feudalism and its compradorism were noted. Mao Zedong differentiated the class representing this capitalism, the comprador bureaucrat bourgeoisie, from the national bourgeoisie representing native capital. The concept of bureaucrat capitalism was further refined by the Peruvian Maoist, Abimael Guzman, or Gonzalo. He noted how bureaucrat capitalism serves both imperialism and feudalism, as well as the traditional type of rich peasants. These characteristics of bureaucrat capitalism provide the key to understand modernity under colonial conditions. Many have noted the persisting presence of pre-capitalist relations and values in the colonies, along with many features of capitalist modernity. 
This condition has been described as, quote, colonial modernity, unquote, distinguishing it from that seen in capitalist countries. The dominant interpretation of this condition as, quote, incomplete modernization, unquote, however misses the essence of the matter. Rather than being incomplete, what happened was the regeneration, resurrection of various features of the old, the traditional, by bureaucrat capitalism, even while it continuously transformed it and ushered in the new. Transformation through bureaucrat capitalism will never be complete. This is the essential characteristic of colonial modernity. So long as the country continues to be under imperialist oppression and bureaucrat capitalism remains operative, this dialectic of transformation slash resurrection will persist. Hence, we see it under neocolonialism as well. The concept of colonial modernity is presently being challenged by arguments about what is termed as, quote, multiple modernities, unquote. This is posed as a rejection of Western hegemonic ideas of a universal model of modernity. It is pointed out that the dominant classical theories of modernization tend to ignore the huge variations within the West itself, not to speak of the non-West. What the sweeping critique ends up with is the elimination of the basic distinction between the West, read capitalist countries, and the non-West, read oppressed countries. In the former, with all of its diversities, modernization was an organic part of the transition to capitalism. In the latter, it was an outgrowth of the forced transformation of the pre-capitalist societies under colonial, semi-colonial conditions, an outcome of the engendering and development of bureaucrat capitalism. Once this basic distinction is left out, one loses sight of the real dynamics seen in the accommodation of both the old and new in the colonies. The replacement offered, in its stead, is the atrociously preposterous assertion that, quote, non-West societies have adopted some components of modernity within their local context, without giving up all of their own specific elements of cultural traditions, unquote. Quote, not all aspects of the model of modernity were accepted by these non-Western societies, unquote. This is preposterous because it assumes that these countries had the freedom to pick and choose the elements of modernity they desired. It is atrocious in that it conceals the violent suppression and imposition suffered by those countries under colonialism. Going by this argument, one would in fact have to conclude that there was and is no such thing as imperialist oppression. Rather than assisting in untangling the complex, contradictory features of colonial modernity, the thesis of multiple modernities simply tries to wish away this task. Instead, we are given a blanket assertion. The Indian modernity is distinctively modern even though it appears to be greatly influenced by traditional cultural values and historical experiences. The unique features of any social formation will persist, even when it is overcome and shaped by a colonizing social system. The process of subjugation and remolding won't be entirely determined by the colonizers. Along with the persistence of previously existing values and relations, the resistance of various sections of the subjugated also will have an active part, even if secondary, in the whole process. Therefore, the contours and features of colonial existence will differ from country to country, and even among different nationalities or regions within them. Yet despite all of this uniqueness, all colonial and semi-colonial countries commonly exhibited certain features, even if they were expressed differently. They continue to do so under neocolonialism. This justifies the employment of the broad concept of colonial modernity. It cannot be replaced by constructs like Indian modernity, Chinese modernity, etc. The thesis of Indian modernity grudgingly admits that, quote, it appears to be greatly influenced by traditional cultural values, unquote. Is this merely a matter of appearance? The apparent admission of the traditional scene here is, actually, the elimination of its place as something basic, essential to the modernity that took form under colonialism. It is a denial of persisting semi-feudalism. 
The insistence of this thesis on, quote, particularizing, unquote, thus ends up concealing prominent, defining particularities. Those adamant on making an East-West opposition the most important dividing line, as seen in these instances of critiquing the universalization done by the West, end up delivering an opposite extreme. In essence, if not explicitly, an equally idealist universalizing East is posited by them. In this case, universalization is actualized by avoiding any critical examination of Eastern conditions and thought constructs. All-embracing concepts claims on being the sole overarching philosophy, the othering of peoples and races as so seen in the East, just as much in the West, are simply ignored. Avoiding stark instances of absolute monism, Advaita and dualism, Samkhya, the concepts of pluralism seen in some schools of thought, Bauda, Jaina, Tao, are presented as something unique to all Eastern thinking. Nothing could be further from the truth. Advaita, for example, swallows up all particularities, including that of its core concept, Nirguna Brahma, by defining it to be undefinable. Realization of this, thereby, the identity of oneself with it, is considered supreme knowledge. Pure contemplation, untainted by practice, not even that of worship, is claimed to be the true path to this realization. Evidently, the exaltation of the pursuit of knowledge solely for its own sake, uncontaminated by practical interests, was by no means a monopoly of classical Greek philosophia, as postcolonial theorists would have it. All absolutist schools of idealism share in this, regardless of their geographical location. This is not to deny concerns and paradigms unique to different traditions. For example, the Nastika-Ostika divide was considered basic in South Asia. That division broadly indicated those schools which accepted the authority of the Vedas, and Smritis, Astika, and those that didn't, Nastika. The implications this unique division had in the articulation and contest over basic issues of philosophy in South Asia, as compared to that seen in the West or elsewhere, certainly demands notice and deep probing. Along with that, we must also keep in mind that this categorization did not make the distinction between mind and matter, and their consideration as primary or secondary irrelevant. The emphatically materialist Sharvaka, Lokayata, schools in the idealist Jaina, Buddhist schools, were no less adamant in their mutual contestations, despite all of them being Nastika. Particularities notwithstanding, the basic question posed by human existence and the sensuous universe are common to all, no matter where they are located. Considering one's own thought as supreme, as the one that orders and informs all other thoughts, was prominent among the idealist schools of South Asia. Postcolonial theorists' fascination with particularization steers them away from such commonly seen characteristics. Instead, they seek to bolster the East-West opposition in the form they conceive by, quote, proving, unquote, that there was nothing similar to the word philosophy in the Southern tradition. The proof is there was a, quote, problem in finding terms in the Sanskrit lexicon that could translate as philosophy, unquote. What are we to make out of this formalism that demands us to apply the terminology of the West as the criteria for determining the nature of the thought processes over here? Rather than matching terms, what matters is something else. Was there any stream in South Asian thought traditions similar to the thinking in Western traditions that conceived of itself as a total system containing the source and explanation of all phenomena, mental and material? The answer is an emphatic yes. Marxism criticized and demolished the thinking dominant in Europe that considered philosophy to be an overarching, supreme system of thought. The classical philosophy referred to in Engels' Ludwig Feuerbach and the end of classical philosophy precisely meant such thinking. Conceiving of philosophy as something standing above all other disciplines of thought was not just a construct of aberrant thought. It also drew on the primitiveness of the sciences, including the science of thought. 
Developments in all these fields made such philosophy redundant, meaningless. Marxism arguments on the demise of the last word philosophies were based on these material developments as well. Unlike post-colonial critiques that end up in a narrow vision guided by locational classifications, Marxism enables us to situate various schools of thought in their historical context. It also allows us to appreciate the contribution they have made to human knowledge, regardless of where they took form and what their persuasions were. This is aided in no small measure by its recognition of the distinct sphere of theory and the dynamics unique to it, through its rich, nuanced understanding of the theory-practice dialectics of praxis, Defining theory as an, quote, efficacy, unquote, that allows us to engage with an ongoing process, the variety of post-colonial theory examined here reduces it to a, quote, particular mode of working with the world rather than abstracting from it, unquote. The understanding of theoretical work as an abstraction from a material process, as a, quote, momentary suspension of it so as to make time or space for thought, unquote, is denied. This logic leads it to refuse theory any specific plan of action unique to it. Theory gets reimagined as practice. Credit is then claimed for getting out of the supposed trap of a theory-practice binary. True, if the work of theory is assumed to be completed once an abstraction is made, it would be sterile. But that observation cannot be taken to the absurd extreme of denying the abstraction necessary for any theorization or the inevitable, quote, momentary suspension, unquote, freezing, as Lenin puts it, of a process, seen in any abstraction from it. Instead of identifying and critiquing the absolutist conception and employment of abstraction made by idealism and mechanical materialism, postcolonialism treats abstraction itself as problematic. The idealist construct of the abstract and concrete as absolutes is taken to be the only mode of expressing their relation. Thereby, the grounding of the abstract and the concrete, which permits it to capture the essence of the latter, their dialectics, is denied. For all that, the postcolonial theorists still cannot avoid theory the abstraction it contains, and the freezing this entails. They are then uneasily re-entered. Theory, it is said, becomes a particular way of practice. It moves from the empirical to the conceptualization, and back with, quote, thought making a place by pausing and tearing, unquote. Theory is presented as to-and-fro motion. This emerges from the thesis of theory as practiced. It is presented as a break from the theory conceived as a, quote, domain unto itself of thought, not practice, unquote. Blurring the distinction between both of them, this post-colonial argument ends up with some astonishing results. Theory is not a domain unto itself. True, but it definitely is a domain of thought. Its capacity to seek out interconnections, contradictions, within and among phenomena, to extrapolate across disciplines and conceive of the totally new, unrelated to immediate sensuous reality, is given precisely by the qualities of thought. When this is denied and theory is reimagined as practice, the actual outcome turns out to be quite the opposite. The transformative potential of a theory is declared to lie, quote, not in its successful application to the domain of practice, but in its ability to change our sense of the world, unquote. Since theory is said to be differently named practice, there should presumably be no need for anything beyond it to verify whether the new sense of the world it lays claim to actually corresponds to the real world. Theory thus becomes self-attesting. Though named as a type of practice, it ends up as a pure thought complete in itself. One may profitably compare this idealism delivered by postcolonial leveling with the rich theory practice dialectics elaborated by Mao Zedong in his work on practice. He elucidates the movement from perceptual knowledge of the empirical to conceptual knowledge and then back to its verification in practice in a never-ending spiral of knowledge. Claiming to offer a different vision of theorization, this postist view states, quote, we need to creatively construct a place of theorizing, which admits to historicity while also being emancipated from it, unquote. Further, 
quote, We must begin our theoretical enterprise by determining the degree and quality of abstraction we seek to achieve from our own historical context and from the empirical materials we work with, unquote. How is this determination to be made? What should be its criteria? Since materialism is given no place in its schemes, postcolonial theorizing inevitably leads to arbitrary choices. The project of critiquing claims about universal histories will remain unfulfilled since the proposed alternative will be yet another arbitrarily determined plane of theorizing. Any history can only be that of a particular society in a particular material context, geography, economy, etc., at a particular juncture of time, and in particular relations to other groups of peoples, societies. It will be determined, shaped by all of them. The derivation of theory, from particularized history, by synthesizing its essential features, calls for abstractions from its correctness. Through this we generalize and derive laws. Yet even if this is done with a high degree of abstraction, they will still retain elements of the particularities they were abstracted from. They will always be accompanied by the infirmity of being constructed from abstractions that are inevitably marked by a, quote, freezing of reality, unquote. Where the grasp and application of theory is tempered, with this awareness it serves as a guide to practice. Otherwise, it misguides it. This is the thrust of Marxism's insistence on creative application. It starts not from theory conceived as some universal model, but from the concrete analysis of concrete conditions. Here, theory is guidance, not an idea to be worked towards and confirmed by analysis and practice. All the leaps in theory and radical practice achieved by Marxism have come through such creative application. This Marxist proposition is entirely grounded in the materialist understanding of the general in particular, of the abstract and concrete. There is nothing arbitrary about it. The mode of production debate of the 1970s and 80s, conducted through the pages of the Economic and Political Weekly, is instructive of what happens when this Marxist approach is missed. Despite offering many new insights, its outcome was inconclusive. But it would be a crude vulgarization to state that the debate was about determining whether the economy was capitalist or not. Rather than seeking such a simplistic yes or no, it was focused on the nature of changes taking place in the Indian economy, particularly in agriculture, its direction, and emergent production relations. These certainly were appropriate topics for a debate on the mode of production. Comparisons with the transitions from feudalism to capitalism in Europe, and drawing lessons from the famous debate over it, also weren't out of place. The main weakness of the debate was its failure to situate its topics within the overriding context of colonialism and continuing neo-colonialism. That was the defining determinant, and it remains so. Instead of giving it due weight, it was treated as one among many other factors. Post-colonial theorization has a different assessment. In its view, relying on the European transition debate was the main error since it was irrelevant for, quote, societies such as ours with no colonies to fund primitive accumulation, unquote. No, not the absence of colonies, but being a colony was decisive. The mode of production debate did not proceed by examining the particularities of the capitalism that was engendered and developed under colonialism, and later under neocolonialism. The problem was not the application of Marxism, but the manner in which it was applied. Postcolonial theorization's damaging implications are further seen in its rejection of the concept of secularism. The reason given is its Christian and European origins that rule out any possibility of working with it. The concept of Indian secularism is said to have emerged from this inability. Should we declare this secularism concept to be irrelevant in our context purely because of its particular origins in Europe, or should we examine whether the issue it addresses are present in our context? If the latter approach, based on the materialist outlook of, quote, seeking truth from facts, unquote, is followed, the answer will be a clear affirmative. 
Though not identical to forms and roles seen in West Europe, religion was always an intrinsic part of state functioning in South Asia. It was inseparable from governance. Therefore, secularism, understood as the separation of religion from the state, making religion a personal matter, is equally necessary here. If this concept is still far from being realized, the problem is not of its inapplicability. It is that of material social conditions that make its realization impossible. It is obstructed by the class, caste, and interests of the rulers who resist all attempts to transform these social conditions. So-called Indian secularism is primarily a construct made up by one section among them to obfuscate this. To argue that it has come from an inability to work with a foreign concept furthers this deceit. The continuing existence of caste feudalism in a transformed form and the growth of bureaucrat capitalism are the most important internal factors blocking democratization and, as a part of it, secularization in our country. Specifically, in the matter of secularism, caste poses a unique problem. No matter what the religion, it is on the whole experienced and practiced in South Asia by an individual through the mediation of caste. So long as caste exists, religion can never be made a private matter since the individual has no social existence outside of caste. The separation of religion from the state will remain a formal gesture, because making religion a private affair is the main vehicle, the guarantee of this separation. The annihilation of caste, the freeing of the individual from the grip of caste, is thus a prerequisite for secularization in South Asia. Its importance, though, will vary from country to country in this region, depending on the continuing weight of the caste system. Given the relation between the annihilation of caste and the secularization, anti-caste social reformers in this region can be seen arriving at the idea of secularism independent of Western thought. Narayana Guru, an outstanding socio-religious reformer of the mid-19th through 20th centuries, and Thiruvit Hamkur, presently in Kuralam, is an example. He insisted that there is no basis for differentiating among humans as castes, since only individual differences exist among them. While remaining a firm Advaiti, he refused to accord any superior status to Hinduism vis-a-vis -vis other religions. Instead, he advanced a profoundly secular concept of religion, quote, whatever may be the religion, what matters is the betterment of the human, unquote. He thus demanded that religion should be a personal matter. These views were not a standalone affair. They had their roots in the Bhakti tradition, which denied the need for any intermediary between the believer and God. Why does the post-colonial theorist fail to identify these indigenous roots of secularism? Is it mere coincidence that this theory shares positions similar to the Rashtraya, Swayam Sevak Song, RSS, and other Hindu Vadi forces that reject secularism, branding it as a Western import? Brahmanism has survived and thrived through its unique method of acquiring hegemonic domination through assimilation. The quote other unquote is accorded space, unlike monotheistic religions, but that space itself is positioned within the Brahmanical hierarchy at a lesser level, as yet another manifestation of its supreme truth. The quote other unquote is thus denied its unique origin and distinct existence. The post-colonial proposal on thinking across traditions shares in this as much as it demands assimilation, not synthesis. Thinking across traditions is seen as an answer to two challenges. One of them is the need to break away from the universalizing Western model, where theoretical abstraction erases the concrete context from which it emerged. It is believed that the proposed method can generate theory that contains generality without nullifying historical differences. Secondly, there is the matter of the quote fossilization unquote of our thought traditions unlike the West. Therefore, postcolonialism seeks to think through non-modern traditions of thought to make them part of contemporary thought. It explains, quote, 
contemporanizing involves treating diverse intellectual traditions as lived traditions, where style and substance reverberate in the present, structuring the way people live and make sense of the world, unquote. The implication and outcome of this method can be seen in the examples offered. One of them is Rabindranath Tagore's and M.K. Gandhi's notions of Gram Swaraj. These are supposed to reveal an, quote, earlier political tradition that was not yet state-centric and yet moving away from traditional village society, unquote, and advancing, quote, a new form of social life that was a side of both forms of power, that of the state and that of caste, unquote. There are several factual errors in this argument. First of all, there was never any village society in South Asia that was outside the ambit of the state or was not state-centric. The much-acclaimed stability of villages that continued regardless of the identity of the sovereign power was given by the persistence of the caste system. All the rulers, regardless of their religious allegiances, retained it since it was highly suitable for control and exploitation. It is true that the ties of the villages to the state were not tightly centralized. That was also true of most medieval societies throughout the world. Though loosely connected to the central state apparatus, whether of an empire or a small kingdom, the villages were the mainstays of caste feudal social formations in South Asia, in all senses. Moreover, neither Tagore nor Gandhi ever conceived a village society aside of caste. All they proposed was the elimination of untouchability, not the annihilation of caste. On the contrary, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar proposed the breakup of the existing caste-bound village society and its reorganization on the basis of equal rights to land. That may perhaps be dismissed by the post-colonial theorist as another example of Western-born solutions. For the oppressed in the villages, it would have made eminent sense regardless of where it came from. So what did the contemporanizing, thinking across traditions, claimed to have been done by Gandhi and Tagore, actually carry out? Theirs was no reworking of traditions to meet contemporary needs. Rather, new ideas of self-reliance, social development, and so on were harnessed to refurbish the old, the retrogressive. One sees the same in the precept, quote, unity and diversity, unquote, presented as the, quote, modern idea of India, unquote. This is a direct take from the Brahmanist teaching. The truth is one, though the sages name it differently. The acceptance of the many, seen here, is simultaneously the denial of distinct identities, origins, and trajectories of everything comprising the diversity. Whether this unity is taken to the Brahmanist concept of truth, national integration, or the Hindu way of life, it precedes diversity. The diversities are mere manifestations of that unity. The presentation of this precept as the idea of modern India is nothing but the employment of the traditional to legitimize a particular reading of the contemporary that privileges the Indian ruling classes. How then can we bridge the rupture inflicted by colonialism that cut us off from our thought traditions? How can we ensure their live presence in contemporary thought? We must begin by accepting the material basis of the rupture. Three centuries and more of separation cannot simply be dismissed. We cannot simply pick up and advance from where the break took place. What is needed is a meaningful effort to regain our knowledge traditions, to end their status as objects of study, and to make them a part of our theoretical exercises. That calls for a critical examination of the core concepts of those traditions and their debates. They will have to be synthesized on the basis of new knowledge. This presents a dilemma. The new knowledge acquired by humankind over this period is overwhelmingly Western in its origins and elaborations. Can we employ them to repair the rupture? Since this break has been concretized in the sphere of philosophy and other ideological forms as the hegemony of Western thought traditions, how can we use them to bridge it? The resolution lies in applying the tools of synthesis to new knowledge itself, in subjecting Western thought to, quote, one divides into two, unquote. 
This is what Marxism has carried out all along. It is seen in the work of its founders and onward through Lenin and Mao, to name its main path-breaking contributors. As Mao puts it succinctly, we must, quote, make the old serve the new and the foreign serve national needs, unquote. This is equally necessary if the proposal made to begin by asking how thinking proceeds in a tradition, instead of approaching that tradition in terms of its substantive concerns, is to give fruitful results. One can and must separately study both of them while taking up any specific thought tradition. One must also keep in mind that they are part of the whole. Method, how thinking proceeds, will always carry the implications of the substantive concerns it serves. It cannot simply be taken over. If following Mao, we are to make the old serve the new, some issues need to be resolved. What should we take from the old, and whose new should it serve? Whose interests should guide it, of the rulers or the people? This brings us to the matter of the class standpoint from which synthesis should be made, the outlook that should guide it. If it's to serve the people, then it has to be done from the standpoint of the proletariat. This combines fierce commitment to the cause of the oppressed and exploited, with a thinking that is always open to learning from the advances in knowledge on the basis of a thoroughgoing materialism. No doubt, this will sound awfully old-fashioned, and not just to post-colonial theorists. Yet the very examples given to justify, the proposed method of contemporanizing, testify to its correctness. Other than those earlier seen, two more examples are given, Ambedkar's contemporanizing of Buddhism with rights-based liberalism into Gore's handling of Upanishadic categories with cosmopolitanism. Ambedkar was not the first to read Buddhism from a liberal democratic gaze. What differentiated him was the concern that illuminated his readings. He was driven by the quest to seek out ideological tools that would aid in the emancipation of an oppressed section of society, the Dalits. That is what made his Buddhism different. Ambedkar could not identify the role of caste in relation to feudal production relations, grasping it integrally as caste feudalism. Nor could he realize how colonial rule reproduced it through growing bureaucrat capitalism. Yet, objectively, the, quote, annihilation of caste, unquote, he insisted on, would resonate with a radical democratic restructuring of society. It stood in opposition to the Gandhian venture of limiting the issue to ending untouchability and caste reforms. This is why Ambedkar's reading of Buddhism and his struggle against the caste system objectively served the cause of the people, despite being guided by liberal democracy. It had the potential to become a part of a new democratic stream, one that could break away from bourgeois democracy and pave the way to a society free of exploitation. The concerns guiding Ambedkar were also seen in his assimilation and application of the modern. He was a firm advocate of parliamentary democracy and its principle of one citizen, one vote. While many of his contemporaries remained satisfied with a formal support for the parliamentary system, he went on to probe what happens when it is applied to a caste-ridden society. He could thus expose how it would produce the opposite of what was intended. It would go on reproducing what he termed as, quote, unchanging communal majority, unquote. This was the continuous reproduction of Savarna domination in the political sphere. In all of these instances, we can trace a common thread. Despite adhering to the liberal democratic outlook of the bourgeoisie, his concern for a section of the oppressed and exploited often took him in an opposite direction. How does Tagore compare with this? He wrote, quote, Baharat Havarsha has endeavored to tie up diversities in a relationship, limited the conflict between opposing and competing elements in a society by keeping them separate and at the same time engaged in a common task that brought diverse elements together, unquote. 
Was caste society, keeping them separate and at the same time engaged, dealing with opposing and competing elements? Were the castes engaged in a common task? Tagore's rendering of caste society glosses over its oppressive, exploitative character. Neither was there any space for competition with the dominant ruling caste, nor did the oppressed castes have any say in the tasks imposed upon them. The tying up of diversities in a so-called common task, as described by Tagore, was a rehash of the Brahmanist precept, unity and diversity. It is the direct opposite of cosmopolitanism. By definition, cosmopolitanism would call for diverse peoples and cultures to coexist, mingling with each other in a give-and-take relation. Tagore was not contemporanizing Brahmanist Upanishadic precepts. He was internalizing and expounding the Western notion of cosmopolitanism through reformed Brahmanist filters. The Brahmanist precept was being given a modern, presentable visage. We see two opposing approaches here. In the first, the past was read employing modern thought categories, guided by concerns of the oppressed. In the second, the modern was read in terms of the past, thus rehabilitating the outmoded. It thus became part of the formative process giving shape to the hegemonic consensus, the legitimacy of the future ruling classes. Where Ambedkar came to see the danger of a communal majority, Brahmanist reformers, such as Raja Ramahan Roy, were attracted to the parliamentary system precisely for this reason. They saw in it the possibility of regaining and retaining a Hindu monopoly over political power. Post-colonial theorization's method of thinking across traditions, in which synthesis has no role, thus brushes over such antagonistic, fundamental divergences. The key question of the standpoint guiding the thinking is ignored. What remains is either an arbitrary pick-and-choose or an eclectic assimilation. Examining the common characteristics shared by Brahmanism, liberalism, and post-colonial theory, Ajay Gudavarthi makes a perceptive observation. Quote, all three frames belong to the same epistemic community, unquote. The social and political effects of the three frames operate within the limit of a politics of accommodation and of incremental and addictive change. We have seen how post-colonial theory abides by assimilation as opposed to synthesis. It indeed operates within a politics of accommodation. However, to make a comprehensive critique of post-colonial theory, we must also acknowledge and factor in a crucial difference it has with Brahmanism and liberalism. Gudavarthi has used the expression, quote, opposition without challenging, unquote, to describe the post-colonial approach. But this is not mere opposition. It goes beyond that to raise some critical questions and brings to the fore hitherto ignored facets. That is where it stands apart from Brahmanism and liberalism. Its exposure of the rupture seen in our knowledge traditions as compared to the continuity seen in the West and critiquing of universal history are some examples. A critical approach to widely accepted theories and concepts is something that it shares with other postist theories. The stance of postism generates the oppositional space that makes it attractive to a wide range of peoples dissatisfied with existing conditions. Postist criticisms, however, ultimately collapse in tame endings, far removed from the roar with which they come. Its targets remain undiminished, even if a bit shaken up. Two specific characteristics unique to postism underlie this sorry outcome. They frame its accommodative politics. Like other streams of postism, postcolonial theory has no place for materiality, the factual basis of the issue under analysis. Thus, the material impact of colonialism in our intellectual life had no role in its discussion on the rupture in our thought traditions. As a result, the resolution is limited to the sphere of thought, the practical task of overcoming material relations that retain our dependent existence 
and thinking has no place in its schemes. Another trait it shares with other streams of postism is its refusal to grasp anything in its totality. Postcolonial theory's aversion to totalizing categories and abstractions is an expression of this. It directly flows from postism's negation of integrative, unifying principles and its insistence on disassembling, deconstructing, unpacking, etc. These methodological tools are useful to the extent that they aid in realizing the inherent limitations of any abstraction, any concept. They are of assistance in drawing attention to features and particularities that may have been swamped out by generalization. Postist thought, with its negation of meta-narratives, absolutises this unraveling. A narrative, a category, that swallows up all the particularities from which it was abstracted should be made to disgorge them. They should be made visible. This would guard against linear interpretations. In its stead, a nuanced reading, closer to reality, would be possible. Yet the totality generated by all those particularities will still remain. One cannot dissolve the former in the latter. Criticism must acknowledge this. Otherwise, in principle, all conceptual thinking should be impossible, since each of them is a meta-narrative in its respective domain. Any phenomenon will have a host of diverse aspects and relations. Despite that, it qualifies as a distinct phenomenon because of some determining aspect or relation. If the determining element is kept aside, one can, at best, give an elaborate account of the diverse aspects at play. For example, in the case of social formation, the question of what its multiple features hinge on, and consequently, where one must strike to disrupt and upset the reigning state of affairs, will be left unanswered in a bewildering abundance of details. Postism claims to be free of bias. All are acknowledged. None are privileged. But that is not the whole story. Postist methodology is not just about, quote, unpacking, unquote, or the parading of particularities to the exclusion of totality. It is equally at ease with packed concepts when that suits its theoretical constructions. In the sample of postcolonial theorization we examined that was seen in its uncritical acceptance of the Brahmanist concept of unity and diversity, questions that would unpack the concept are studiously avoided. That is, questions about this unity, what it represents, who it serves, and so on, questions that would subject it to critical examination, are shunned. The lumping together of all thinking that came from Europe under the generic label of Western thought is another example of postism's convenient packing. Postist methods and their conceptual frames apparently hold out the promise of a richly textured, nuanced comprehension. However, by rendering the whole invisible, by obscuring determining elements at a swelter of discursive layers brought about through selective unpacking, it remains ambivalent. This has grave implications. When applied to politics, the opposites get diffused, dividing lines are blurred. We can sample this, for instance, in an attempt made to understand the political of hurt sentiments through Foucauldian biopolitics. The issue is the fanning up of Hindu vigilantism under the Modi government. We are first given an account of the concept, quote, the sovereign is actually made to depend on a wide array of decentralized executives, unquote. Quote, one of the central premises of biopolitics is the dispersal of centralized power, the shift from a model of sovereignty to a model of governmentality, unquote. And, quote, the reason this mechanism can come into play is that the enemies who have to be done away with are not adversaries in the political sense of the term. They are threats, either external or internal, to the population and for the population, unquote. Drawing on this, the conclusion is made, quote, Modi can sustain his statement-like demeanor and present himself as the neutral and secular protector of the values of the modern state, as well as its citizens only because the task of discriminating between what is considered to be Indian and what is considered to be a foreign threat to the Indianness has been transformed to the population itself. 
which is not hindered by the restrictions based on human rights, neutrality, and rule of law, unquote. First about the concept. The Foucauldian argument on the dispersal of centralized power of a sovereign made to depend upon a wide array of decentralized executives is a good example of how Postus thought swamps out totality with its extra-large offering of particularities. Under capitalism, the state directly deals with almost all aspects of one's life, public and private, carried out through government functions. In this sense, and to this extent, one can speak of governmentality. To read a dispersal of state power into this, to conclude that the sovereign has been forced into doing it, is simply ridiculous. There has been no dispersal of state power or its decentralization. Its administration has been decentralized. Through this, the state has actually become even more powerful in protecting and carrying out its centralized role. Compare this with Gramsci's concept of the hegemonic consensus evolved by a ruling class to legitimize its rule. The Gramscian concept breaks away from linear visions. It allows us to comprehend the multiple mediations and structures through which state power is exercised. The socio-cultural dimensions of power relations actualizing state power are revealed. Yet this is not a denial of the reality of centralized state power. Rather, we are given an all-around, nuanced understanding of it about its sustenance and reproduction through a wide range of elements. On the contrary, the Foucauldian concept disappears the determining feature of a state, namely the centralized power of a class, serving and protecting its interest. The multiple mediations of the exercise of this power, including through its internalization by those being ruled over, are taken as independent. They are posed separate from their shaping up by the centralized state. Simultaneously, even while all these layers are being set up, a key element of the argument, the population, is carefully shielded from being unpacked. The numerous divisions in a society, their differing interests and consequently varying responses to what is deemed as a threat by the ruling class, all of this is swept under the term population. The antagonistic relation between a state-serving and exploiting class and the people it rules over is vanished. The people, meaning the oppressed, objectively constitute the enemy of any exploitative state. Hence, if the strictures of biopolitics are strictly followed, the people, as part of the population, would be a threat to themselves. Admittedly, this is a rather gross caricature. It is nevertheless useful in bringing out how the Foucauldian argument obscures the people's enemy, i.e. the state-serving and exploitive ruling class, how it causes passivity and a feeling of helplessness in the midst of a suffocating embrace by an oppressive state power. The attempt made to explain Hinduvadi vigilantism in terms of this concept elucidates all of these harmful facets. It is argued that Modi is able to sustain an image of neutrality in this matter only because the task of differentiating and defending Indianness has been transferred to the population. The said entity, it is argued, can act as it wishes, enforcing its vision of Indianness without bothering about niceties of fundamental rights or the rule of law. Meanwhile, the government can avoid taking blame and even appear as a defender of rights. According to the concept of biopolitics, the transfer to the population of discriminating between what is and is not Indianness is an attribute of the shift from sovereignty to governmentality. It should then have predated the Modi government. Then why is that we see an uptide of Hindu vigilantism now under this government? Biopolitics cannot explain this precisely because of its denial of the centralized nature of state power and its mediations through social instruments like political parties, their associated organizations, and mass followings. When a political party gets to control the state apparatus, it can employ it to promote its specific program. Once we admit this, the quote, puzzle, unquote, falls into place. There's been no transfer of anything to some amorphous population. Hinduvadi vigilante attacks are carried out by some sections of people, not by a population at large. They are in fact a tiny minority. These vigilantes are not nameless. They belong to Brahmanist Hindu fascist outfits inspired or organized, 
and led by the Rashtraya Swayamasevic Song, RSS. The Modi government, too, is a tool of this organization and guided by it. The chief ministers in BJP, ruled states, have been tasked with keeping the police machinery in check so that the vigilantes have a free hand. Simultaneously, Modi, at the center, plays the statesman role. He tries to dampen public reaction with a stance of neutrality and carefully spaced outbursts against those directly involved in lynchings. The purpose is to prevent a broad mobilization against Brahmanist Hindu fascism by lulling the opposition with false expectations of government action. From the lynch mobs to the anguished statesmen, all are playing their part in an orchestration of hate, centrally conducted and centrally managed. Once we get rid of the webs of confusion woven by postism, the seamless project of Brahmanist Hindu fascism operating at different levels and through varied modes stands out in all its hideousness. In place of a shapeless antagonist, the population, a clear target gets revealed. Besides, the possibility for a deeper and broader assessment of the Hindu Vadi uptide also opens up. While there has been a surge in Hindu vigilantism under the Modi dispensation, the matter cannot be viewed purely in terms of an RSS game plan. Aggressive promotion of Brahmanist values and practices is seen across the whole ruling class political spectrum. Consider some recent instances. An MLA in the Maharashtra Assembly was suspended for refusing to chant Bharat Mata Ki Jai salutes to Mother India. In his view, considering a country as one's mother didn't accord with his religious beliefs. Not just BJP or Shiv Sena legislators, those from the Congress and NCP were also a part of the frenzied move to get him suspended. In fact, it was initiated by one from the latter, quote, secular, unquote, grouping. This despite his willingness to chant, Jai Hind, salutes to India. Akhlak was murdered, accused of keeping beef in his refrigerator, while Akhilesh Yadav, of the Samajwadi party, was ruling in UP. Instead of going all out to arrest the perpetrators of this fascist act, his administration was keener on testing the meat to check whether it was really beef, as if that would, at least halfway, justify the murder. Obviously, the rise of aggressive Brahmanism goes beyond the RSS. All these acts are an integral part of the ongoing ruling class exercise to recast its hegemonic consensus, replacing hitherto preferred soft, implicit Brahmanism with an aggressive, explicit one. The differences within this are solely about mode and quantum. To conclude, human thought ceaselessly poses new questions and seeks new answers. It keeps on pushing at the frontiers of knowledge. The need for new concepts and methods suitable for engaging with new fields of inquiry, constantly arise. Just as with knowledge, there is no last word here. Unlike other systems of thought, Marxism is capable of grasping, of realizing, that it has neither exhausted knowledge nor its tools. Both in its emergence and in its further advance, Marxism has drawn strength from its engagement with diverse streams of thought and subsequent synthesis. Its future depends very much on retaining and employing this quality in close relation to the practice of changing the world. This is the challenge posed before Marxism by postisms. Their unsettling must be welcomed, questions must be embraced, even while the fatal errors of their methods, the superficiality of their concepts, and the misguidance inflicted by their conclusions are vigorously negated. For a Materialist Ethics 1. Given that ethics belongs to the realm of consciousness, of thinking, can there be a materialist ethics? Most idealist schools of thought rule out the very idea. If at all, it is grudgingly admitted, all that is acceded to materialism is an imperfect concept of ethics. Consider the critique of materialist ethics given by Bal Gangadhar Tilak in his Gita Rahasya. It is rooted in his definition of materialism as a system of thought that accepts only that which can be sensed by human sensory organs. 
What is left out in this simplistic definition is materialism's insistence on the objective existence of matter. Matter exists regardless of our sensing it or not. This is the key difference it has with various shades of idealism. All of them ultimately deny the independent, objective existence of matter. Tillock's main accusation is that materialism cannot comprehend the mind and all that comes in the mental realm. Relying on this assertion, he goes on to claim that a materialist ethics, which tries to incorporate concern for mental satisfaction, must go against its own material premise. This is a baseless argument. Various materialist schools do differ on the relation between mind and matter and their nature, but none of them deny the existence of the mind and mental activity. Even the most hedonist among them do not see pleasure purely in materialist terms. They too accept the mental satisfaction accompanying a pleasurable act. Differing from other schools, the materialism of Marxism goes beyond a recognition of mind along with matter. Mechanical materialism stresses the conditioning of humans by the circumstances in which they live. Criticizing this one-sided view, Marxism draws attention to the conscious role of humans in transforming their condition of existence. That too is a part of their material existence. Marx wrote, quote, The materialist doctrine that men are products of circumstances and upbringing and that, therefore, changed men are products of other circumstances and changed upbringing Forget that circumstances are changed precisely by men, and that the educator must himself be educated. The coincidence of changing of circumstances and human activity can only be conceived and rationally understood as a revolutionary practice, unquote. Human activity is conscious activity. While consciousness is determined by social existence, it is not an inert product of material conditions. It can contemplate the human conditions of existence, ignite the desire and will to change them, and thereby change itself. Marxist materialist dialectics thus make it capable of advancing a materialist understanding of the mental, spiritual side of human existence without subtracting from their specificities. What is meant by the spiritual side of human existence is not spiritualism, the belief in some superhuman power. It indicates a broad range of mental states, feelings, emotions, aesthetic sense, the contemplative, the philosophical, and more. Though the religious mind, spiritualism, may also be present, it is not a necessary factor. The capacity of human consciousness, including that of reflecting on the circumstances of its existence, underlies the material basis of ethical thinking. Tillock is guided by the belief that there is, quote, something, unquote, beyond sensuous reality. He then accuses materialism of failing to go beyond sensuous appearances and grasp this essence. There are schools of materialism that hold the view that the apparent is all there is. That is wrong. One must no doubt go beyond appearances. But what exactly is the essence to be grasped? For Tilak, it is the ultimate, eternal, singular, Parabrahma of Advaita. However, even those materialist schools that insist on going beyond appearances to get at the essence understand it to be as material as the phenomenon being studied. Consistent materialism does not consider the essence to be something singular. There are essences, not a simple, all-embracing essence. Having set the record straight, we can now proceed to the real issue involved in arriving at a materialist ethics. It must be grounded in materialist reality. However, this does not mean the use of materiality simply as a gross yardstick. Doing good or seeking satisfaction for the many can no doubt be assessed materially. Even then, that does not provide sufficient grounds for determining the ethics of those acts. Consider the case of an ethics guided by realizing the mental and material satisfaction of the majority. While such sentiments are laudable, any attempt to fix the criterion of, quote, satisfaction, unquote, 
turns out to be quite slippery. Satisfaction is a highly relative notion. Besides, something apparently benefiting the many may have actually been born from narrow individual interests. Take the example of a capitalist starting a factory, employing many workers. She or he can claim to be benefiting many people by giving them work and steady incomes, and this would be true. All the same, the motive of the capitalist was not to serve the interests of many. It came from the urge to deploy capital in order to appropriate surplus value created by the workers. Far more than workers, the capitalist would benefit. Western Europe's enlightenment rooted ethics in rational thought. It thus freed it from theology. Ground was opened up for bringing forward materialist thinking on ethics. Yet bourgeois rationalist thought could not fulfill the task it had set for itself. The interests of this class were thoroughly material. But when these interests were enthroned as the determinant of ethics, when this ethics was declared to be universal, an irreparable contradiction came up. It made the elaboration of this ethics inconsistent in its materialism. This emerged from the wide gulf between the bourgeoisie's claim on universality and the reality of its narrow exploitative class interests. The only way the bourgeoisie could bridge this was by appealing to a normative notion of, quote, humanity, unquote. Being so, it was something preconceived and thus idealist. The bourgeois notion of, quote, humanity, unquote, is normative because it is circumscribed by its class interests. In its initial formulation, it included only a tiny fraction, propertied white males. Whatever, quote, concreteness, unquote, this concept later acquired, mainly came through the struggles of various social sections of the whole peoples initially excluded from it. At present, at least in principle, the domain of the human is accepted as standing for all humanity. Even then, it still remains arbitrary. The determination of which of its claims are granted legitimacy remains limited by bourgeois class interests. So long as humanity is divided by oppressive social relations, this can never be resolved. They indicate social divisions, the continuing limits imposed on the quote, human unquote. This has its implications for ethics. For imperialism, there is nothing wrong or inhuman in its plunder and exploitation of oppressed nations by investing finance capital in them. It considers this to be conducive to their quote, development unquote. Similarly, excluding all consideration of the social privileges and advantages they still enjoy, the Savarnas believe that their insistence on merit in opposition to caste-based reservation is completely just. So too is the male attitude on gender privileges and discrimination. The, quote, interests of humanity, unquote, becoming the determinant of ethics was indeed a historical advance, even if this remained at the conceptual level. Its abstract nature and limited range indicate that humanity must go beyond it. Any concrete determination of the interests of humanity demands that they be placed in actually existing conditions. This will show that the vast majority of humans, whether they live in the advanced imperialist countries or backward oppressed nations, exist in inhuman conditions. Not just economic deprivation, there's also the denial of conditions necessary for the flowering of their human abilities. Any determination of human interests must take these conditions as its basis. That again would only be a beginning. The oppressed are divided by class, caste, gender, ethnicity, race, nationality, and religion, to name a few. Even while being broadly within the category of the oppressed, each of them have their sectoral interests. Can we take their sum total to determine the interests of humanity? No. The contradictions existing among them rule that out. Moreover, the presence of sectoral interests also indicates the possibility of separate resolutions. The specific oppression or exploitation suffered by one or the other social group may be overcome in this manner. To give an example from history, 
the Shudra caste were part of the oppressed and early medieval caste feudalism. Over time, they have elevated their economic and social status. Presently, as part of the Savarna bloc, their elite are an inseparable component of the ruling classes. The upward movement of the rich peasantry and upper strata of the middle peasantry in different parts of the country is another example. Since sectoral interests are very much a part of the existence of the oppressed, can there be one among them that could be taken for determining the vital elements of human interests and the means to satisfy them? A satisfactory resolution of this predicament requires the identification of a sectoral interest, both in its origin and articulation, that also has the potential to be all-encompassing. We need to identify a social group who's striving to satisfy its sectoral interests must, by necessity, simultaneously address the task posed by the challenge of achieving humane conditions of existence for all of humanity, in both the material and spiritual spheres. The quest is answered by the proletariat. A particular section of this class may be able to gain better conditions of work or improve its standard of living. Between imperialist and oppressed countries and among various sections in a single country, their conditions of existence vary substantially. Some strata even get a share of surplus value squeezed out from other workers. Furthermore, it is scarred by the social divisions, race, caste, gender, etc., of the society it exists in. Yet despite all these blemishes, all sections and all strata of the class still suffer from exploitation of the surplus value they generate. That remains common to the whole class, even in the most ideal conditions of labor. Under capitalism, the proletariat suffers exploitation in the very act of production and the mutual contract it freely enters into with the capitalists. This, then, is the ultimate in exploitation. To emancipate itself from these conditions, the proletariat must end all exploitation. Its emancipation is possible only with the emancipation of all humanity by ending all relations and conditions permitting exploitation and oppression. It must persist in its epochal world-transformative role to that end if its objective is to be achieved. Karl Marx thus described it as the, quote, last class, unquote. This is the potential contained in the materialist conditions of existence of this class. Its realization, however, is neither preordained nor preassured. That depends on arduous struggle, on the gaining of consciousness, of becoming a, quote, class for itself, unquote. History cautions us that this process is by no means linear. Simultaneously, it also demonstrates the world-transforming potential of this class. The interests of emancipating this class remain as the only reliable, consistent, determinate for the elaborating a thoroughly materialist ethics, one that satisfies the needs of humanity in an all-around manner. The world has already witnessed mighty efforts in this direction, transforming social conditions as well as the transformers. Despite yielding important gains, these processes have suffered setbacks. Therefore, any meaningful effort to reverse the backslide and continue forward must take up a critical examination of these historical experiences. 2. Substantial advance was made in the erstwhile socialist countries in terms of generating a new consciousness of ethics guided by social concern. Both in community living and workplaces, there were numerous real-life instances where people created new social norms, breaking away from self-interest. Cynics dismiss this as fleeting moments. They assert that the human is selfish by nature, and this can never be changed. The present stage at which the human race has arrived gives ample refutation of this assertion. If not for the millions who stood up, facing heavy odds throughout history, if not for their sacrifice, humans would have never advanced this far. We can therefore safely ignore the eternal doubters. The question of why leaps to a new social consciousness could not be sustained cannot, however, be brushed off. Social existence determines social consciousness. 
The human essence is an ensemble of social relations. At present, they are marked by the exercise of domination, of oppressive privileging, of exploitation. This is taking place in various forms in greater or lesser degrees at all levels of society. All of them leave their stamp on the proletariat and its leading representatives. The complexity of human nature is created, conditioned, and sustained by this materiality. Though it would undergo a basic change in a socialist society, a total transformation would be a long-drawn affair. Rather than relying on preconceived schemata as standards for judging erstwhile socialist societies, the focus should be on this material reality, on the actual conditions that existed in those countries. We should try to identify material factors that enabled transformation of consciousness, a necessary condition for the emergence of new humans. We should also locate factors that impeded or resisted this transformation. Starting from this complex, contradictory reality, taking it as the sphere of social praxis, we will be on firm footing in evaluating policies followed in these societies and identifying where they were lacking. It would be best to focus our inquiry on the most advanced and latest experience in this regard, the Cultural Revolution, or CR, of China. The declared aim of the CR was, quote, transformation of world outlook, unquote. This directly engages with our topic of inquiry, thus justifying the choice. The CR's emphasis on creating new consciousness unleashed the creative energies of the masses. It brought forth a high tide of critical thinking. New ideas and practices in governance, work, community living, education, and a host of other spheres emerged. Some have argued that this flowering was made possible by a freezing of the Communist Party's active and all-embracing leading role. Its later return is considered as an imposition that stifled the CR's vigor and dampened mass activism. The CR initially focused on overthrowing capitalist rotors from the positions of power they had usurped. This was identified as the target. During this period, the functioning of the party at the lowest levels was practically in a state of suspension for quite some time. Traditional structures of governance and leadership were challenged. They often broke down or were overthrown. The locus of authority rapidly passed from one group to another. However, the central party leadership and its control over the army remained more or less intact. This was decisive in enabling and sustaining the huge outpouring of the masses. The line of the party and its leadership were of crucial importance in this. The initial phase of CR saw the emergence of several new forms of exercising power, including the Shanghai Commune. The Commune was formed and based on the direct participation of the masses. However, instead of the Commune, eventually the Revolutionary Committee, or RC, was finalized as the new form of power. The party's leading role was retained in it. Though formed through a consultative process involving the masses, it was different from the Commune model. The leadership justified this choice by pointing out international and national constraints and contradictions. It explained that the commune model would have difficulties in handling them. The turn to revolutionary committees and its consolidation have been criticized as a quote going back unquote from the ideals of the CR. It is said to be a factor that contributed to its ultimate defeat. What is missed in this criticism is the actual zigzag course of any radical advance. Its wave-like progress through high tides, pauses, and ebb is lost sight of. No people can continuously engage in a high pitch of struggle. Continuing divisions such as those of mental and manual labor, gender discrimination, the differential wage system, and similar factors, made the retention of bourgeois right inevitable. This placed limits on the extent to which the advance would be taken forward. The hangovers from the past could only be eliminated through steady, long-drawn digging away, a step-by-step -step process. They could not be ended abruptly. In view of all these factors, the turn of the CR's consolidation, retaining the leading role of the party, 
cannot be taken as a retreat. It was a necessary prelude for a new advance. A further deepening of the transformation of world outlook task took place in the later phase of the CR. This justifies the assessment made above. Going beyond targeting and pulling down capitalist rotors, the struggle was developed to uncover the material base that gave birth to them and sustain them. Why did some of those who had contributed to the arduous struggle to achieve new democracy turn into those obstructing further advance? What was the role of the continuing wage system, various contradictions and social divisions carried over from the past, in this negative turn? These and similar questions were posed and debated. In the process, material conditions that were favorable or inimical to the generation of new consciousness were uncovered. This was also a deepening of the materialist approach. It identified and strove to confront social relations as they actually existed. They were sought to be grasped in all their contradictoriness, together with the varied consciousness they generated. Despite such heights achieved in that gigantic leap, aimed at rupturing from the centuries-old self-centered thinking and bringing about a radical transformation of consciousness, it was defeated. A wholesale promotion of self-interest, epitomized in the slogan, to get rich is good, took center stage. Uneven balance of powers between the socialist rotors and capitalist rotors, adverse international conditions, problems in the style of leadership, and various other factors had been cited to explain the reversal. Even if in differing degrees, all of them seemed to have played a role. The capitalist takeover was not a smooth affair. Fierce resistance came up in a number of provinces. This was an indication of an uneven, yet real, transformation of world outlook and the advance made in politicization of the broad masses. Even after the resistance was crushed with brutal force, opposition to policies reversing the verdicts of the CR continued in China. The legacy of the CR is still alive throughout the world. To do it justice and take it forward, negative trends inherent to the CR, as it actually unfolded, must be probed. Paucity of information makes this a rather difficult task. Within this limitation, I venture some observations. Rather than final conclusions, they are more in the nature of suggesting a possible area of probing. Art and literature were prominent among the many battlefronts of the CR. Within this, contention over the content and form of Chinese opera became quite intense. The old and outmoded were being sustained in opera by capitalist rotors, through a repertoire taken from the past. For example, under the plea of retaining classicism, the feudal outlook of demeaning women was being perpetrated. This was done through roles and restricted movements allowed to them. The model operas guided by socialist rotors came up in opposition to this. They were a welcome break. First-person accounts of how these operas impacted the masses and unleashed their artistic creativity are available. Even then, the treatment of themes of arduous struggle and sacrifice seen in the model operas does raise some questions. The dominant approach was one of projecting the positive side of the positive character. Their heroines and heroes were presented as perfect without blemishes. Even when they started out with inner conflicts, further progress, especially after acquiring communist awareness, was portrayed as linear. The consciousness of selfless service to the people these operas tried to inculcate would surely have suffered from this linearity. Such treatments fail to deeply engage with the actual process through which ordinary people emerge as heroines or heroes of the masses. The internal conflicts they pass through get very little attention. Real leaders are replaced by perfect ones, even dragging in a sense of supercapacities. The treatment would have hindered an appreciation of the relativity of the perfect. An element of idealism is indicated in this that did not accord with the basic ideological, theoretical vision guiding the CR. Nor did it correspond to the theoretical advances made during the CR in identifying the social, material basis of reaction in a socialist society. These advances had given a new awareness. They taught that the emergence of capitalist rotors and their efforts to reverse the advance of society 
was not simply a matter of the conspiracies of some, quote, bad, unquote, people. It was realized that they emerged from the very relations of the new society. In a certain sense, their path was cleared by the new society through eliminating the class rule of the old exploiters. Individuals, events, and the whole ensemble of social relations were being grasped and addressed in an all-around manner by this new understanding, appreciating their contradictory nature. In spite of the positive contribution of the model operas in overthrowing the old, their one-sided projection of the perfect departed from this new approach. Ultimately, it would give some negative results. Fighting selfishness, struggle against revisionism was one of the key slogans of the CR. It captures its essence, indicating the target, revisionism, and aim, transforming one's own consciousness. It placed the fight against one's own selfishness and gaining new social consciousness as a key corollary and necessity in the struggle to overthrow capitalist rotors and prevent new ones from emerging. To remain consistent to this teaching, the heroines and heroes of the people needed to be depicted in their actuality, in their ordinariness, neither pure nor ideal but struggling against their own and society's inhibiting factors to attain new heights. The perfection of those who have attained those heights would be that of real people, who achieved it with all of their flaws. It would still be imperfect. Given the scanty information available, this observation can only be put forward as a surmise. It has been claimed that Mao Zedong had, at one point, criticized the model opera repertoire of hampering a broad emergence of new forms and variety. That may be true. There is, however, no indication of his criticizing the very approach, their very treatment of the themes. Another trend, contrary to the spirit of CR, was seen in the tendency to adulate the new heights of ideology. It was almost projected as some sort of a magic wand, something already containing answers to everything. A personality cult extolling the leadership reinforced this. It has been stated that these approaches had their roots in the views and practices of a section of the leadership that was actually trying to derail the CR. Corrections seen in the second phase of the CR offer corroboration. In this phase, central propaganda took care to project how the new heights of ideology had the capacity to solve real-life problems, provided it was applied as a guide. A dialectical critique of the old, including past exploitative systems, was promoted. The ups and downs of the Chinese people's response and resistance to imperialism, giving due recognition to the objective output of feudal reforms too, was elaborated. Yet all said, some elements of idealist, mechanical thinking do seem to be indicated at the leading levels of the CR itself. In social life that could get crystallized as a tendency to erect the ideal, arbitrarily claiming some unique right to do so. With its insistence on conformity, the social atmosphere generated would be one of stifling the lively activism and expression of the masses. True, that ideal would surely be sanctioned by new conditions created through the CR. The insistence on sticking to it would appear to be justified as a defense against capitalist rotors, but that could only be one aspect. Handling the ideal as something to be conformed to, rather than an ongoing striving, would strongly tend to overlook the thriving contradictoriness of the people itself, the source of their creativity. It would also fail to see that some aspects of the new may have themselves be made obsolete by this continuous process. Certitude is no doubt essential in any endeavor, even more so when its aim is world-transforming. So to our faith and loyalty. Yet, when this tends towards perceiving reality in terms of absolute opposites, when faith and loyalty get deployed as principal guarantees of staying the course, the ever-present tendency to seek out absolutes, whether as principles or leaderships, plays up. This is, to a great extent, related to the way humans must go ahead with their lives, with all of its complexities. They cannot live in relativeness, though their lives are, overall, 
in that relation to their conditions of existence. These have their certainties, no doubt, but quite often they get treated as absolutes. The quest to achieve a new consciousness, underlying a new ethics of social communion, must necessarily accept this limitation and handle it dialectically. To this we must further add the problem of ideology. As world outlooks, it guides praxis. But the praxis itself makes part of this ideology redundant. For example, in the beginning phase of the CR, the focus was on overthrowing the capitalist rotors. Once that was achieved, deepening and consolidating the new came to the forefront. That demanded changes in pace along with the working out of the new. If this was missed or taken up in a weak manner, consolidation would also be weakened. Ideology would not keep pace with the changing conditions and new tasks. Where the earlier frame of thinking remains dominant, false consciousness, an ever-present element in ideology, would become predominant. The sphere of praxis would be conceived in terms of the earlier reality. It would be a construct of the previous thought frame, rather than the new reality with its new set of challenges. This would inevitably promote idealism and mechanical dogmatic approaches. 3. The experience of the CR and the theoretical insights it gave remind us of the reality of socialist society. It speaks of actual social existence in those conditions and the real problems that must be tackled while striving to create conditions for the emergence of a new consciousness. The project of a materialist ethics based on the class interests of the proletariat must proceed from here. Evaluation of the past can help in identifying positive gains that need to be built on for future advances. Mistakes to be avoided can also be noted. Yet, it would be foolish to rush forward and decide upon policies and methods for a future socialist society. They can only be worked out in the concrete conditions existing at that time, within that country and in that world. The past can only give guidance. However, that doesn't mean that the insights and warnings given can be canned for now and kept aside. To the extent possible, within existing material constraints, those lessons must be applied. The unleashing of the potential contained in the proletariat and the working out of a new ethics always remains an ongoing process. The how and when of actualizing these are best answered by those directly engaged in the process of transforming material conditions. Keeping that limitation in mind, some observations are attempted here. In large parts of the country, the struggle for control of Jal, Jungle, and Jamin, Water, Jungle, and Land, the three J's, and the power to decide their use is going on. People's rights over local resources are being asserted against attempts to plunder them for the narrow interests of a tiny minority. Two issues come up in the context. Local right over resources cannot be taken in an absolute sense, in the sense of reserving local resources solely for local use. Since the local is part of the society from which it draws on, a sound policy must incorporate such broader interests too. That calls for careful thought. The dispossession of people and grabbing of resources going on now is also done in the name of, quote, larger interests, unquote. Even when the people are given some share under the pressure of your struggle, it is vastly inferior in quality and quantity to the gains being made by the appropriators. It goes to reinforce relations of exploitation and oppression. Moreover, the key issue is not of share, but of how and for whom it must be used. So how would the relation of the local and broader social interests be handled in the future? The models that emerge through the CR give some direction. Decentralized production aiming at regional self-sufficiency to the maximum possible extent and the integration of industry and agriculture are of particular relevance. In the light of problems thrown up by ever higher levels of integration of the economy, countrywide and at the world level, these initial steps promoted by the CR need to be taken forward. That brings us to the second issue. To do justice to control over the three J's, its essence must be taken as one of relying and building on local resources. How far can this be done? 
Material constraints, including the volatility of the situation, cannot be ignored while seeking an answer to this. Yet, within these limits, more thoughts need to be paid to this matter. It has to be made a key issue in the consciousness of building the new and the actual process of realizing it. On a long-term basis, this directly touches on a very powerful challenge that will be faced by any new society. This is the severing of relations with the world imperialist system and standing on one's own feet. Going beyond economics, it directly touches on the political. It is closely tied up with the development of a new ethics. The theory of productive forces was one of the views subjected to sharp criticism during the CR. It held that efforts should be mainly made to develop productive forces. It refused to give prime place to the transformation of the superstructure and relations of production. Investment volumes and advanced technology were taken as the key factors for development. In opposition to this, the socialist rotors insisted on putting politics in command, on raising consciousness and achieving faster, better growth through innovations relying on available resources. The need to promote self-reliance as key in achieving real control over the three J's should be related to this lesson of the CR. It becomes all the more crucial in the present context of globalization and the unbridled consumerism it energetically promotes. It wouldn't do to put this aside as premature and consider it as a task that can be taken up in the future. Foundations need to be laid in mass consciousness, keeping future tasks in mind. The very process of moving towards the new society has to generate and reinforce this thinking. There is a huge qualitative difference between the radical transitions of the 20th century and the present. Views on minimum conditions and comforts of existence and social aspirations, all of these widely differ. This has ideological implications. New impediments, as well as openings, awareness, favoring advances have come up. Among them, the growing realization of the impossibility of continuing with the presently dominant mode of production, consumption and style of living, has great importance. That is true not just for the future of humanity. It is also an entry point towards broadening the domain of the human and by extension of ethics. 4. Earlier we saw how ethical thinking advanced to recognition of human interests and its principal determinant. We also saw how this further advance rests on realizing the potential of the proletariat to transform the world by emancipating all humanity. However, a growing volume of critical thinking and the conditions we live in drive in a vital message. The interests of humanity cannot be determined solely within the limits of the human species, its existence and needs. It must encompass the whole globe with all of its species and geographical features and climatic conditions. Scientific opinion is already moving towards recognizing that the Earth has entered a new epoch, the Anthropocene. This is an acknowledgement of the fundamental and irreversible way in which humans have affected the planet and all dimensions of its existence. There is the physical implication, the threat of destroying the conditions of existence of humanity and extincting ourselves. This is also an ethical issue. Do we humans have the right to pursue our needs disregarding the consequences for the existence and sustenance of nature? The answer to this ultimately touches on what is meant by subordinating self-interest, what we define as narrow selfishness. In terms of the globe and all that exists on it, a singular pursuit of human needs causing their destruction should indeed qualify as selfishness. And that would stand even though everything being wiped out is unable to comprehend this in those terms. This is not some notion of animal rights or a matter of going back to earlier practices, a return to nature. The present realization of the consequences of our actions, this ability to reflect on them, is solely human. Furthermore, it is a product of a long chain of scientific thought and practice made possible by the modern age. No other species has or can have the awareness of its rights. 
to conceive of rights to think about other species or the globe is a uniquely human capability. Ecological chains of mutually supporting non-human species have emerged from their instincts of existence and reproduction. They are not born of consciousness, of mutual respect for each other's rights. We must also not forget that it is not only humans who have wiped out many species. Other animals and plants have also done this, eventually causing their own extinction. The difference is that we, as a species, have consciousness. That gives us the potential to rise above our immediate interests and think about the consequences of our modes of existence. We alone can comprehend the need to radically change our style of living, not just for the sake of our species, but for the whole globe. We alone can consciously grasp that we are part of nature, neither above nor beside it. Incorporation of ecological sensibility thus becomes a vital part of a consistently materialist ethics. It also calls for a purposeful rupture from anthropocentric thinking. Here we need to further develop the critique of Brahmanism. It is sometimes argued that, despite all its faults, Brahmanism must be condemned for its broad vision on the human-nature relation. Retaining and worshipping small patches of pristine nature as sacred groves, worshipping a tree and begging its pardon before cutting it down, principles of conservation set out in texts, like the Artisastra and many more examples, are cited to justify the claim. Brahmanism, too, like all other theology, grants a, quote, special place, unquote, for humans in the larger scheme of a supreme being. Unlike Abrahamic religions, it does not declare the earth and everything seen on it to be created by a god for the enjoyment of man. However, the very concept of a preordained special mission, or a place for man, firmly places it within the fold of a male-privileged anthropocentrism. There is no special reason for the emergence of the human race. Neither is there any special need justifying its continued existence, other than that common to all species, to sustain itself. The point to grasp is that consciousness makes humans different from other species, not special. We can be considered higher, on an evolutionary scale, starting from the inanimate, but never so in a judgmental sense as something given by superabilities or power. Lack in ecological awareness and incomplete rupture from anthropocentrism were two of the major flaws of the erstwhile efforts to win and build socialism. It is not the case that these were ignored altogether. Both the founders of Marxism gave valuable insights. In particular, Marx's critique of the rupture caused in the nature-human metabolism by capitalism directly engages with questions posed by contemporary ecological concerns. Similarly, Engels' debunking of human supremacy and ridiculing claims about humans as masters of nature provides firm ground for taking on anthropocentrism. Yet these insights were not brought to the fore or worked out as an integral part of the communist project. One can cite a number of historical, objective reasons for this. Even then, the harm caused by this lack, amplified in later years in the actual practice of building socialism, cannot be denied. It must be surmounted as part of the project to reverse setbacks. While reviewing the past, a qualitative distinction must be made. The sidelining of environmental concerns in socialist societies took place in a context of strenuous efforts to build a society free from exploitation. It cannot be bracketed with the destruction inflicted upon nature by capitalism's profit motive. The ideals to which the former aspired allows a rectification of this lapse. It would in fact strengthen those ideals and make them more perfect. The latter, by its very dynamic, is restricted to technological fixes that ultimately go to serve the same profit motive that made them necessary in the first place. Keeping this qualitative distinction in mind, we must try to identify problems in the thinking that guided the building of socialism. We must seek out the lacunae that caused the muting and even downright ignoring of ecological concerns. One issue that comes to mind is that of social organization of production. The socialization of production brought about under capitalism, within the factory and in the broader economy, was a historical advance. 
But can the proletariat simply take it over after expropriating the expropriators? Doesn't the profit motive intrinsic to capitalism mark each and every aspect of its socialization and production? The development of capitalist socialization and production to its present heights of imperialist globalization poses these questions even more acutely. Decentralization and outsourcing of the production process across a number of countries is a notable feature of the present globalized world economy. While this gives super profits to imperialist and comprador corporates, it reduces the workers' opportunities for struggle and puts heavy strain on the environment. Aggravated ravaging of resources in complex, costly chains of transportation in both production and consumption are prominent. Obviously, this sort of socialization and production is neither necessary nor sustainable. It would have to be uprooted, broken up, in a future society that gives due weight to environmental concerns. The rupture from capitalist forms of socialization and production should be taken further within individual countries. Possibilities of decentralized economic models, stressing self-reliance, must be taken up at the level of theory and practice. It should be linked with the elimination of major social divisions. Some beginning was made in the direction through Mao's critique of Soviet economics in the new forms of social organization and production that came up in erstwhile socialist China. They give direction for the future. Ethics is usually treated as something separate from politics. It has, of course, its own specificities that demand distinct treatment, but there can be no ethics devoid of politics. The pinning of ethics on the edicts of some beyond-the-world power, seen in most idealist views, is itself an example of the politics involved. In this case, it is the hiding of class interests that actually underlines ethics. Ethics is essentially removed by idealism from the domain of human agency. The categorization of the good and bad is based on preconceived values said to be given by a superhuman power. These value systems invariably insist on the submission of the laboring classes to their masters as something ordained by a god. Thus, the wholly materialist character of the class interests of the exploiters in both its political and economic dimensions gets faded out. They are now presented as God-given endowments, essentially spiritualistic. As a consistently materialist ethics, one that dialectically comprehends social existence within the wider context of nature, has to be explicit about its politics. Just as the ethics of the proletariat has to be political, its politics too must be ethical. The radical transformation of the world necessarily calls for the simultaneous transformation of its own consciousness by the leading class. Within that process, an ethical thinking oriented on becoming truly humane must be consciously promoted. This implies a ceaseless struggle to end all exploitation and oppression, and of acquiring awareness of ecological responsibilities as part of the consciousness that this struggle demands. On the Laws of History Humans must carry out production to satisfy their needs. While engaging in this, they use tools. They work on raw materials. In this process, they enter into different relations with each other. Such relations are of several types. Relations among the direct producers, between them and those who control production, and corner its surplus, and among the latter. All of these elements together constitute a mode of production. The mode of production of a social system has distinctive features. In the case of capitalism, we see the use of machinery, artificial sources of energy, and increasing socialization of the production process. Production is carried out with free labor, i.e. the labor of workers who are free to sell their labor power to any capitalist. Capitalism is marked by a complex division of labor. This mode of production has had a global character from the very beginning. It tends to recreate the whole world in its own image. This stems from the inner tendency of capitalism. Hence, the features of this mode of production are almost identical in all the countries where it has taken root and grown. 
but this was not the case in the various pre-capitalist modes of production that existed in different regions of the world. Each one of them was unique. To give some examples, the Incan Empire, which was centered in present-day Peru, had features similar to slavery and feudalism as they existed in Western Europe. It also had many features seen in tribal societies. In South Asia, the tribal kingdoms of the Gangetic Plains developed into what was termed a shudra-holding mode of production by Saket Rajan. While exhibiting similarities to slave or feudal societies, it was neither. Pre-colonial Africa had a few large tribal kingdoms, which also exploited slave labor. Slave trade too was prevalent, though far less in volume compared to that of the colonial period. The shudra-holding mode of production extended all the way to present-day Karnataka. It later transformed into caste feudalism. But this was not simply feudalism plus caste. At the bottom level, bonded labor, mainly of Dalits, and tenancy of Shudra and Avarna caste, presently categorized as other backward classes, existed. Caste was both a division of labor and of laborers. Unique trajectories of social transformation and varied geosocial circumstances in different regions of the subcontinent laid their own stamp on this development. In a region of the southwestern coastal strip, presently Karalum, landless Dalits, and some Adivasi tribes, existed as Adialar. They were bought, sold, rented out, or mortgaged. Adialar markets existed right up till the mid-19th century. Incidentally, the unique mode of caste feudalism emerged directly from the tribal kingdoms of an earlier period. These examples show us that the schemata of primitive communism, slavery, feudalism, capitalism, mistakenly elevates the particular trajectory of Western Europe's historical development to a universal, general law. Whereas, in fact, any enumeration of the general features of slavery or feudalism would be true only for that limited part of the world. If instead they are treated as universal models, the diverse pre-capitalist modes of production would be treated as mere variations from some predetermined standard. This would block a deeper probing of the specificities of various modes of production. What was and is common for all modes of production were and are its dual components, productive forces and relations of production. The concreteness of their existence and interaction, the unity and struggle between them, in a specific mode of production was always unique. It remains so. The specific modes of surplus extraction from the direct producers determine and distinguish distinct social systems. However, it wouldn't do to treat this simplistically. Take the Adialar situation. They were traded like cattle, just as in any slave society. Yet Adialar, trade was not simply slave trade. Adialatum was always mediated through caste or tribe. Only Dalits, and a few tribes like the Paniar and Adiar, were Adialar. Moreover, Adialar were not only traded. They could be mortgaged or rented out on terms identical to similar transactions in land. The primary condition for Adialatum was the denial of all land rights, including tenancy, to those subjected to it. Denial of right to land was something uniquely suffered by all Dalit castes in South Asia. It was a prominent feature of caste feudal societies. Yet Adialatam was not common, and despite some similarities in the mode of surplus extraction, it was distinct from slavery. So what does all of this tell us about the concepts of historical materialism, of the laws of historical transition it propounds? How should we grasp and apply them? There is a strong current in what is known as Western Marxism that denies such laws altogether. It argues that this was never mentioned by Marx. In its view, such laws were later interjected by Engels. This argument is readily contradicted by Marx's preface for a contribution to the critique of political economy. There he wrote about the dialectics of the relations of production and productive forces of base and superstructure. He gave an outline of how their correspondence turns into antagonism 
leading to revolution and the birth of a new social system. Clearly, he was indicating universal laws of social dynamics and transformation. Admittedly, that doesn't settle the matter completely. Is Marxism correct in conceptualizing such laws? Hasn't it led to a linear view of historical development? The existence of that tendency in the harm it has caused is undeniable. Those afflicted by it tend to analyze concrete social formations by way of reference to a supposedly universal trajectory of historical transformation. Analysis is centered on determining whether the society being studied was a form of slavery or feudalism, etc. Progression through such stages is taken as an absolute law of history. The task of historical study is seen as that of seeking out and following the operation of this law, tracing out how it worked out in a particular society. Needless to say, study of such particularities of that society and analysis of their interactions is reduced to mere enumeration. Despite this, damage wrought by this tendency can't be the rationale to abandon the advance achieved through Marxism's synthesizing of the laws of historical transition and its analytical categories. On the contrary, they must be firmly adhered to, especially in the face of the postmodernist tarring of them as meta-narratives. Postis would have it that the very conception of such laws and categories is erroneous since it inevitably brushes out all diversity, particularities, and micro-domains. Is that really so? Can we do without such categories? Leave aside those advanced by Marxism. How would the postmodernist meta-narrative itself stand up to its own opposition? As a concept, it too is an abstraction from multiple particularities. Even if we were to decide to stick to the micro-level as opposed to a meta-level, there wouldn't be any escape. That very micro-level could easily be demonstrated as another meta-narrative, albeit quite restricted. We would end up trapped in a vicious cycle. Lenin offers a way out from this dead end. He points out how every law is a freezing of reality. Our identification of some aspects or relations of a phenomenon while deriving a law is an abstraction from the complexity of its real motion and existence. This is why it is a freezing. It is no doubt necessary and fruitful, yet it is also always incomplete. This is equally true of all laws formulated by Marxism and its several categories of analysis. If guided by this awareness, Marxist categories and laws would be applied as abstractions that grasp some essentials and provide orientation. We would be able to refine and enrich them further through creative application. The rich rewards of rupture from mechanical thinking were well reaped in Marxist historiography by Didi Kosambi in India. While the CPI's theoreticians like Dange remained stuck in identifying different periods in the history of subcontinent with preset stages like primitive communism, slavery, etc., Kosambi forged a new path in historical study. Grasping the essence of Marxist historical materialism, he sought to unravel the social forms and contradictions generated through the dialectics of force, relations, and production. This led to a breakthrough in identifying the role and operation of caste and its transformative and socioeconomic functions. His studies also contributed to the methodology of Marxist historical studies and enlarged its scope and sources by creatively drawing upon living history as embodied in popular folklore and myths. When properly understood, the role and relations of caste help us grasp categories such as relations-slash-forces of production, or base-slash-superstructure, and their dynamics in an organic manner. Human labor is one of the factors of productive forces. As a division of labor, caste enabled specialization and thus promoted productivity but the rigid, segregated nature of this division of labor underlies its other role as a division of laborers. Over time, the advantage it gave through specialization turned into its opposite. Fresh knowledge or technique was blocked by rigid segregation. Specialization was reduced to a narrow rote. It was further compounded by the forcible separation of mental and manual labor 
and the prevention of any interaction between the two, caste in both of its functions, was enforced through Brahmanism's karma theory. One's birth into caste is seen by this theory as a favor or retribution for the karma of one's past lives. Thus, even a prefunctory exploration of caste brings out the organic nature of the production relation's productive forces based superstructure opposites. We are also reminded that these categories are abstractions made from a single whole. They are facets of a unity as it actually exists of a unique social system. Caste, as both division of labor and of laborers, directly reveals the base-slash-superstructure relation. In its former dimension, it is part of the relations of production belonging to the base. In the latter, as control and domination over the labor force, it is part of the superstructure. Yet for quite a long time, the debate among Marxists in India was whether it should be placed in the base or superstructure. This negative fruit of mechanical conceptualization was further worsened by a class reductionist approach. The primacy of class was treated as an exclusion of all other social forms. This again became an additional reason for denying caste role in the base. The class-caste relation offers rich material to probe the mediations of class, of class as it actually exists. It is also helpful in grasping the caste system as a dynamic one. We can thus break away from its depiction as stagnant, bereft of any internal impulse. This is very important for Marx's studies of the subcontinent. Operating with the available information, Marx viewed the caste system as an unchanging one. He argued that this had caused the subcontinent to remain stagnant for centuries, transforming only under external conquest. This picture of stagnation has long since been abandoned by most Marxist theoreticians. They have correctly concluded that very little theoretical value should be accorded to these writings of Marx. They were journalistic pieces. The information he relied on was quite patchy and superficial. Yet there are still some who swear by them and declare them to be gems of Marxist scholarship. If anything, this is a gross indication of the continuing grip of mechanical thinking. Unraveling the mediations of class and the dynamics of the caste system will be of great help in unmasking such vulgarizations. Despite being units of a division of labor, caste was never synonymous with class. Even during classical caste feudalism, at the bottommost level, economic differentiation existed among Dalit castes. Though present in a most rudimentary form, it already indicated caste and class as different social forms. For example, the headman of the Pulia Yar, enslaved to a landlord, enjoyed economic privileges like a tiny patch of paddy, reserved the exclusive benefit of his family. At other levels of the caste system, such as among the Brahmins, class differentiation was far more distinct. Towards the latter period of caste feudal societies, especially while being transformed into semi-feudalism under colonialism, this became more clear-cut. Class and caste stood apart in greater degrees. Their distinction has become even more apparent today yet the mediation of class through caste and other social forms and vice versa remains. Today, too, the vast majority of the laboring classes come from the dominated castes, particularly Dalits. At the other end, the exploiting classes are overwhelmingly from the dominant caste, mostly Savarna. The pattern remains the same in the matter of assets as well. This has major implications for mobilization and social activism. Where the class sought to be mobilized is composed mainly of one caste, Progress is rapid once a breakthrough is made, but if it includes people from several castes, particularly those at differing levels of the caste order, the task becomes complex. Class unity built on a suppression of its caste mediations or tensions proves brittle and even counterproductive. Solid class unity, the forging of class consciousness, can only be achieved by addressing the caste divide through incorporating the component of caste annihilation in class struggle. This is equally true of gender and other social divisions. 
Such is the process by which the proletariat can truly become a class for itself in the particular context of our country. This process must be led on both the material, practice, and ideal ideology planes. More specifically, realizing the potential of the proletariat to become the vanguard is directly related to its ability to address the multiple relations of suppression and exploitation. Every one of them are facets of a single social existence. They are, in fact, so many mediations of the class domination it must overthrow and the exploitation it must end. This does not mean that caste or other social forms slash relations are mere extensions or manifest forms of class. That is not what is meant by the primacy of class. Mediation is not a one-way affair. Identifying and exploring the class mediations of caste or other social forms is equally possible. Caste and all other social forms have their own intrinsic dynamic. They in turn interact with that of class and influence it. In an exploitative society, all these social relations are shaped and reproduced to serve the interests of the ruling class. The elimination of all these oppressive social constructs hinges on overthrowing this class and its state. This is the material basis of the primacy of class. However, it is neither absolute nor self-constructive. Its realization depends on the capacity of the vanguard class to grasp the particularities and dynamics of diverse forms and relations of social oppression. Its success in developing suitable policies and practice to address them is what matters. If that is missed, then precisely because of the intrinsic dynamic of these social forms relations, one or the other will gain prominence as a pole of mobilization. Let us now move on to the dynamics of the caste system. The caste system is a graded order. Each caste has a pre-assigned, rigidly fixed position. The dynamics of the system stem from this very ordering itself. Any ordering always poses, potentially, the possibility of a reordering. One of the sources of such reordering was the expansion of a caste feudalism through the swallowing up of tribes. In this process, different layers of tribes, or whole tribes, were incorporated as new castes. An expansion or reorganization of the existing division of labor inevitably took place. At times this entailed a repositioning of castes. Wars and conquests leading to a boost in the fortunes of some and disaster for others was another impulse. On some occasions, this also led to a caste reverting to a tribe. Apart from such contingent causes, the very role of caste as a division of labor, and consequently, its role in promoting productivity, was an ever-present potential driver in the reordering of the caste order. Over a period, the rise in surplus became an enabling factor for an upper stratum to form within the caste or caste positions at the higher levels of the pecking order among the dominated castes. Increasing prosperity in turn provided impetus to the ever-present urge for elevating their status on the caste order. The desire to make it commiserate with their newfound economic status became compulsive. This the caste system does not allow. The repositioning they desired could then come about only through challenging the very rationale of caste ordering, of the caste system, and the ideology of Brahmanism underpinning it. This was why the dynamic spurring on the numerous anti-caste movements led by socio-religious reformers, broadly known as bhakti movements. Incidentally, these movements most usually counterposed a broad, inclusive community to the narrow exclusivity of caste. Articulated in native tongues, they represented the early stirrings of emergent nationalities on the subcontinent. Most of these movements eventually reaccommodated Brahmanism. Even when one broke away, like Sikhism, it recreated the caste order within the new religious community. Even then, in one way or another, the caste system as it existed in different regions underwent a reordering. Some of the erstwhile dominated castes became part of the dominating castes. At the level of production, the constraints of the earlier division of labor were overcome through the new order. Control over assets such as land were restructured. 
The whole process also reveals the role of class within the dynamics of the caste system. Given that caste was a division of labor belonging to a specific mode of production, this was inevitable. But it was not a linear process. The reordering of the caste system cannot be reduced to a form of the working out of class dynamics. The primary cultural compulsions propelling the caste and the van were uniquely drawn from caste oppression. The contours and content of religious protests were framed and inspired by ripening contradictions within Brahmanist theology. Class and caste, culture and theology, all of them were activated and propelled by their own dynamics, interacting with and interpenetrating each other. The transformation of the Ezhavar and Avarna caste of the southern part of present-day Keralam under conditions of colonial modernity well illuminates the above dialectic. The particular caste position of the Ezhavar was conducive for utilizing some of the new economic opportunities opened up by colonialism. An upper stratum of the caste prospered through it, yet their social status remained unchanged, even continuing to suffer untouchability. This contradiction articulated itself in the mobilization and struggles of the Ezhavar at several levels, religious, ideological, political, social, cultural, and economic. Consequently, a major change took place in their social status and opened up further avenues for growth. This overwhelmingly benefited its upper stratum. It is now an inseparable part of the ruling class. But the Brahmanic outlook continues to place this caste among the Arvarnas. The great majority of Ezhavar remain part of the exploited classes. Even the rich upper stratum is still outweighed in economic clout by the Malayali Nair, Christian, and Muslim elite, all of whom enjoy Savarna status. Yet in social agency, it has acquired strength, allowing it to stand up to the Savarnas. Social awakening engendered through the whole process encompassed all of the Ezhavar as a caste. Consequently, encouraged by agents of this caste awakening, Ezhavar workers linked up to form the first trade union among the nascent proletariat in the choir industry of Thiruvathem Corps. They later went on to break away from the casteist control exercised by Ezhavar capitalists, thus immensely contributing to the growth of a class-conscious workers' movement and the laying of foundations for the communist movement in Kuralam. Let me conclude. History as it evolved was never linear, neither is society as it exists. Even then, the movement of this complex, chaotic whole does reveal certain laws. One can determine certain analytical categories. Marxism aids us in identifying, grasping, and employing them to understand history and society. Simultaneously, it also reminds us of the limits of these categories of analysis. It warns us against treating them as rigid molds waiting for content, rather than as markers and aids in the process of unraveling objective truth. The Vanguard in the 21st Century For a rather big section of the broad left, the first decade of this century was all about Hugo Chavez, late president of Venezuela, and Chavismo. Chavez was among one of the world leaders who came to power on a left platform in some South American countries. He stood out with his distinct ideological, political vision. Quite a few leftist intellectuals hailed and promoted it as the, quote, socialism of the 21st century, unquote. The Chavez government enjoyed the support of a broad spectrum of social sections. This was often referred to as a rainbow coalition. It was propounded as an eminent form of political inclusiveness and counterposed to the Leninist vanguard concept. The erstwhile socialist societies were accused of being exclusivist and marked by the rule of a party elite. This was seen as an outcome of the vanguard concept. Within a decade or so, much of the leftist stance of the governments that had come to power in South American countries became quite diluted. In the case of Venezuela, the crash in oil price sent its economy into a disastrous tailspin. Under conditions of severe economic stress, 
amplified enormously by U.S. imperialism-led sanctions, many of the social welfare schemes introduced by Chavez had to be reduced to their skeletal remains. The rainbow of the coalition is now a pale shadow, if it at all still lingers on. Capitalizing on the breakdown in the system and hardships caused by economic crisis, anti-Chavista forces funded and instigated by U.S. imperialism have been able to widen their appeal. Some sections of the middle classes have gone over to them. Given the social influence exerted by this class in these types of societies, one can expect that they have pulled along some from the bottom layers as well. The statist approach of the Chavistas would also have played its part in alienating quite a few among the basic masses. Chavez was instrumental in setting up a broad alliance of South American countries, trying to reset or reduce their dependence on U.S. imperialism. This brought him and his party into sharp contradiction with successive U.S. regimes. All of them continuously tried to undermine and overthrow Chavista rule. They supported and instigated rightist forces within the country. This has intensified in recent years. All governments that have attempted to go against one or other imperialist power have faced similar situations. Critical economic downturns make them more vulnerable. What we see in Venezuela is therefore not unusual. Even then, it still cannot be easily dismissed as an inevitable development. Both the unique nature of the crisis faced by that country, as well as the limitations faced by the present Maduro government in fully unleashing the revolutionary potential of the basic classes against the rightists, the tools of Yankee imperialism, stem from disabilities inherent to Chavismo. Venezuela made some notable advances in public services under Chavez. Between 1998 and 2007, health coverage went up sixfold. Pension benefits tripled. Secondary education enrollment increased by nearly 25%, and daily calorie consumption by 50%. These are just some sample indicators. All of this was made possible by channelizing a large share of the country's oil earnings into public services. Chavez succeeded in overriding stiff resistance, both internal and external, to such redistributive policies with the backing of popular support. But he hardly made a dent in the lopsided dependence of the country on its oil income. As a result, Venezuela remained enmeshed in ties of dependence to imperialism. The unfolding of the global financial crisis and the subsequent prolonged recession leading to the crash in oil prices only served to bring out the stability. Chavez could neither broad-base the economy nor advance it towards self-reliance. Some have justified this with arguments on tactical difficulties in breaking out of long-standing relations of dependence. One can well admit that the elimination of centuries-old ties of dependence is a tough, prolonged task. It will have to go through a zigzag process facing great difficulties and disruptions. The Venezuelan situation, however, cannot be explained away like that. Chavismo did not envisage a radical break from imperialist dependence. Neither did it call for the elimination of capitalism. Rather, its project was limited to populist reforms, resets, and adjustments within these bounds of dependence and exploitation. Guided by a pessimistic view of the world's situation and a negative appraisal of the setbacks in the erstwhile socialist countries, it could never go beyond that restricted agenda. It is not the case that Chavez's assertive policies and efforts to promote a South American grouping, separate from U.S.-led bodies, were gimmicks. They were surely genuine. But for all that, they remained well within the space for opposition allowed under neo-colonialism. The flexible, broad coalition devised by Chavismo was not a counter-hegemonic bloc pitted against that of the people's enemies. It was an attempt at recasting the exploiter's hegemonic consensus in order to allow the accommodation of middle-class interests to a greater degree, along with some heavy doses of populism for the bottommost classes. The form and function of the Rainbow Coalition was in fact yet another version of capitalism's accommodative political forms. 
Chavista policies kept the country vulnerable to the ups and downs of the world imperialist system. Its reformist politics and top-heavy forms of governance hampered the politicization of the masses. These politics prevented it from relying on the masses by unleashing their revolutionary potential. Instead, instruments of the old state like the army and the Chavistas' bureaucratic organizational forms were positioned as the main weapons to resist U.S. imperialism and its lackeys. It thus compounded and aggravated the aftershocks of the global financial crisis and recession. The dire conditions in which Venezuela finds itself today underline the limits and errors of Chavismo. Similar to all other reformist ideologies and practices, it promised only to default. Its projection as the socialism of the 21st century has proven to be false. Contemporary socialism must continue to base itself on the advances and lessons given by the erstwhile socialist societies. That is not to say that the Chavista project has nothing more to offer, other than a reaffirmation of the relevance of Marxism. Even if in a spontaneous and superficial manner, it brought to focus and reflected a new socio-political, cultural feature seen all over the world. A large number of social groups have become increasingly conscious about their oppressive existence. They are identifying the structures underlying it and forces perpetrating it. They have taken to the path of struggle, on their own in alliance with others, employing forms ranging from the passive to the violently militant, then floundering in confusion, now pushing ahead in vigorous confidence, perhaps ebbing here, but in full flow over there, a broad array is out there, a rainbow of forces if you so wish to name it, fighting for their causes. The various factors that have gone into its making, its origins and trajectories, all of this would make an absorbing topic, but for now I focus on the present. What does this imply for the communist project? Proponents of the Rainbow Coalition thesis would argue that it has made both the political purpose and organizational forms of the communist project redundant. They accuse the communists of having suppressed diverse social interests in the name of the primacy of some overarching proletarian interests. Moreover, the growing self-awareness and mobilization of various social groups rules out any role for an external agency, like a communist party, conscientizing and organizing them. Proletarian interest is presented in these accusations as something sectional. This is not how Marxism views it. Marx and Engels pointed out that the proletariat can achieve its liberation only through the emancipation of all humanity. This is the essence of proletarian interests. To be true to it, the proletariat's struggle for liberation must necessarily address all forms of domination and exploitation. This is why proletarian interests are claimed to be overarching. The communist society it wishes to build can only emerge from an endeavor imbued with this vision of all-around emancipation. Marx characterized that society as the ending of all exploitation and oppression, the uprooting of all relations and social structures on which they stood, and the elimination of all thinking and consciousness they have given rise to. The realization of this all-embracing emancipatory potential is not something pre-assured or easily obtained. The class struggle of the proletariat acquires this quality to the extent it addresses the emancipatory concerns of all oppressed, exploited sections of society. This is the class struggle that is to be made principal. Obviously, the self-conscientization of any or all oppressed sections of society would only aid this. The sooner all the exploited or oppressed take up the struggle, the better it would be to realize the all-embracing and emancipatory potential of proletarian-led class struggle. At the very least, it would serve to expose and correct any sectarian, self-centered grasp of what proletarian interests are all about. A genuine communist party can never consider itself a, quote, savior, unquote. It cannot conceive of itself as some sort of sole agency in the business of dispensing emancipation. So far as the organizational aspect is considered, there is nothing in the communist project demanding that each and every mobilization or organization of the masses 
should necessarily be led or carried out by a communist party. Yes, we surely do see experiences similar to this in the past. They were products of existing social conditions in many countries, especially in the most oppressed ones. The communists were pioneers in making the masses conscious and organizing them into struggle. A good example of such work and the comprehensive guidance given by Lenin on this task were seen in the activities of the Bolsheviks in pre-revolutionary Russia. That became the main reference for the Third International in systematizing organizational tasks and methods of work among the masses. Not just successful revolutions, the numerous struggles of the masses led by communist parties all over the world and their gains testified to the usefulness of this model. The role such activities have played in enabling broad conscientization and opening up ground for the self-awareness and organization widely seen at present is undeniable. Yet there is also the fact that these organizations far outnumber those led by communist parties today. The struggles they have waged on their own or in alliance with each other have been quite significant in their breadth and intensity. How should communist parties view this? Two types of responses are usually seen. One of them stamps almost all of these organizations and their struggles as creations of imperialism and reaction. Their real purpose is declared to be that of confusing the masses, keeping them trapped in reformism, alienated from genuine revolutionary forces. The fact that many of them are built and led by foreign or corporate-funded NGOs is taken as further proof. Much of this is true. The active role played by the CIA and similar agencies in promoting these organizations and the theories they propound is now documented. But that still doesn't answer a vital question. How are we to understand the widespread self-awareness now seen among the oppressed? What does it signify? To deny the self-agency seen here, to portray it too as an implant of imperialism, would be doing a grave injustice to the masses. The second type of response distinguishes itself with its acceptance of the self-awareness as a positive development. It is hence self-critical. The errors committed by the communists in grasping and handling the issues of various sections of society, like women, Dalits, Adivasis, and so on, are accepted. Those errors are seen as a major factor underlying the distancing of these social groups from the communist parties. Their working out of new theorization, often critical of Marxism, and independent organizing are seen as responses to the failures of the communists in this regard. However, despite the self-analysis and recognition of a new social reality seen here, this view still remains within the earlier frame. It believes that the task before the communist parties is to correct their earlier error and regain lost ground. It still holds to this view that, as far as possible, each and every section of the masses should be organized and led by communists themselves. Evidently, its appreciation of the new social scene is still quite restricted. Errors in theory and practice committed by the communist parties while handling various social issues have no doubt contributed in a negative manner to the shaping of these conditions. But, far more than that, awareness has been growing among the masses about their dire conditions, the forces and structures perpetrating it. This is principle. This is what has propelled them into struggle, to form organizations, to sustain their activities. The communists must grasp this important, qualitative development. They must factor it into their activities in all fields. The dynamic interplay between this outflow of mass awareness and action and the communist project must be identified and correctly handled. That is the demand placed by these times before any genuine vanguard. Mao Zedong made a deeply perceptive observation in the post-World War II context. He pointed out that imperialism has created the material and moral foundations for its destruction. The immense growth of self-awareness among the masses and the struggles that we see around us with all its ebbs and flows is one representation of this qualitatively new feature of the world situation. So how can the communist parties fulfill their vanguard role in this situation? They will certainly have to continue organizing various sections of the oppressed and mobilize them into struggle. They must continue to draw them into the overall radical endeavor to root out the basic structures of exploitation and oppression. 
Along with that, they have to better master the science and art of working along with a wide variety of forces, including those with negative attitudes towards the communist project. Admittedly, this is not entirely new. Communist parties have long since been involved in such practices. What is new is the carrying out of this task and the changed situation with its favorable and unfavorable factors. The favorable aspect is the heightened awareness and willingness to enter into a struggle scene among the masses. The unfavorable one is the strengthening to reformism that keeps them within the narrow frames of specific sectional demands. Consequently, it goes to promote sectarianism. However, so long as the masses are in struggle, its very dynamics go to create grounds for overcoming sectarian attitudes and bringing all genuine pro-people forces together. A vanguard should keep this potential in mind and pursue policies that enable its realization. The heightened awareness of the masses also divides into two. Take, for example, the identity consciousness of an oppressed social group. It is this that brings it into struggle by becoming aware of the specific discrimination and oppression it suffers from. There is another side, too. That identity itself has been formed, structured, and sustained by those very relations they confront. Therefore, to the extent the struggle remains within the frame of identity consciousness, it ultimately keeps it within the bounds of the oppressive social system. This is the reformist core inevitable to every identity politics. While engaging in ideological struggle with the identity politics seen among oppressed sections of society, a proletarian vanguard should unite with their opposition, seen in that politics, to the existing system and the struggles brought forth by them. United activities and united front have always been important components of communist activity. They acquire added significance in present conditions. All along accepted as a key component of the strategic vision in oppressed countries, the united front has acquired strategic significance in imperialist countries too. Furthermore, in both types of countries, its significant role will extend into post-revolutionary society all the way through. To be successful in united front activities, a vanguard should retain its independence and initiative. It should also guard against sectarianism. A vanguard should be adept at seeking out points of unity with various struggling forces and articulating policies and demands addressing them. The present situation demands a further fine-tuning of the struggle against sectarianism. Organizations grounded among one or the other social group, yet hostile to the communist project, are not at all uncommon today. Firmly grasping the significance of growing self-awareness and the struggle of the oppressed, a communist party must differentiate between the objective role played by such forces and the views they express. To the extent that they truly stand with the people in struggle, objectively they are part of the broad stream of forces contributing to the cause of radical change. Keeping this in mind, a vanguard should handle criticism made against it by such forces, even harsh ones, in a non-antagonistic manner, replying with prudent reasoning, just and restrained. It is the duty of a vanguard to unite the masses to bring together all streams of opposition into a mighty torrent. United front activities must be led in such a manner that it enhances the consciousness of those composing it, including that of the Communist Party and the masses it directly leads. Therefore, the aim should be to win over the maximum number of forces to the highest level of unity possible at a specific juncture. This demands continuous effort to gain knowledge of the specific conditions and issues faced by diverse social sections and trends of thinking current among them. It calls for sustained application of the mass line, from the masses to the masses, and firm grasp of the principle the masses are the real creators of history. Sectarianism in United Front activity emerges from various tendencies. One of them is rooted in the wrong understanding of leadership. The sectarian outlook views this as a matter of getting demands, positions, slogans advanced by the party, accepted somehow or the other. This reflects a failure to apply mass line and leadership. It hampers united activities and ultimately weakens the vanguard's leading role. Another manifestation of sectarianism is seen in the instrumentalist approach which proposes, form united fronts where the party is weak, go ahead on one's own where it is strong. 
the crux of United Front activity, its organic link to the mass line, is missed in this view. The air comes from a top-down, elitist approach in grasping and handling the relation between a vanguard and the broad masses. It further bolsters this attitude, causing great harm. In the context of wider self-awareness among the masses, the negative fallout of sectarian tendencies on the part of a communist party will be doubly amplified. To strengthen their guard against such errors, the communists must thoroughly rid themselves of any idealist understanding of the communist party and its vanguard role. A communist party does not become a vanguard just by the act of its formation. There is a continuous process of its becoming one. Its vanguard role is something to be worked towards. It is a quality and acceptance it has to acquire and retain through its political leadership, theoretical work, and radical practice. Furthermore, even when a communist party carries out its vanguard role successfully, that does not make it the sole or final arbiter of knowledge. Knowledge is being generated continuously, at diverse levels all over the world. Therefore, a communist party should be ever alert to the possibility that its understanding on some issue may be wrong or outdated. If that is not made a part of its awareness, an attitude of considering the party or leadership to be above errors will get entrenched. Conscious, critical grasp will be increasingly replaced by blind faith in the dogmatic assertion of my party, right or wrong. All of this will have added significance in a newborn socialist society. The state in socialism is of a particular type. It has to simultaneously promote conditions for its eventual withering away, even while it carries out all the functions of governance. In this condition, the Communist Party must have an institutionalized role in the state. It is necessary in order to retain the hegemony and continuity of proletarian class interests. This special, unchallengeable position of the party always carries the danger of it getting atrophied, of getting alienated from the masses and lording over them. The deviations mentioned earlier can easily get compounded if they are not struggled against consistently. Basing themselves on the advances made through the Cultural Revolution, the Communist parties must further develop structures and methods, allowing the supervision of the party by the masses. Their guidance must be the observation made by Mao Zedong that there is nothing wrong in the masses teaching a lesson to the Communist Party. The role of diverse organizations functioning independent of the Communist Party, of the United Front led by it, in a future socialist society needs to be situated in this context. They can and should play an active role in the political, social life of that society, as part of the mass supervision over the Communist Party. Though being part of the broad category of mass, some of the classes and strata within it could go over to the camp of imperialism and reaction, particularly in times of economic stress and political flux. The threat of organizations based among them becoming centers of counter-revolution will be ever-present. This will at times call for closer supervision over them, or even curbing of some freedoms. But as Mao advocated, the overall policy should be one of opening out. In the long run, the positive gain of consistent united front policy and a vibrant political culture will far outweigh the dangers this would pose at times. Along with the elimination of class, the emergence of a qualitatively new social consciousness would be an essential constituent of the transition to communism. Yet it would still not be the case that each and every individual will have become a communist. More likely than not, various social organizations will remain or newly emerge, reflecting divergences in interests and inclinations engaged in non-antagonistic contention. Meanwhile, the Communist Party itself would have fulfilled its vanguard role by creating conditions that would make it redundant and allow the quote rainbow unquote to really shine.